0: Guess what, cinephiles? I have just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S. So you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN.
1: Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So, like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you can actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They are on ExpressVPN, so you can, you can get access to, like, thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to this stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows. there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there, when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using Express VPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use
0: ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free.
1: Hi, this is John. This week on The Cinephiles, Steve Morris and I are going into the past to 1960 to talk about a French crime drama film, Breathless. It's written and directed by Jean-Luc Godard and it stars the late, great Jean-Paul Belmondo, who we just recently lost a few weeks ago, uh, along on the same day that we lost Michael Kenneth Williams, two fantastic talents lost on the same day. And we're doing this in honor of him. Steve was very kind to create space for us to do this one in our schedule. We have a very busy schedule, but we created space to do this one. Uh, it, the film basically focuses on Belmondo as a wandering criminal named Michelle, who is uh, who is trying to seduce his American girlfriend, Patricia, who's played by Gene Seberg, after he's killed a cop and stolen a car. So he's trying to elude the police. And the whole time, through the movie, he's having these interesting, philosophical, intelligent conversations conversations with Patricia, and doing his best version of Humphrey Bogart. It's incredible, this film. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor and watch it before we talk about it this week on The Cinephiles. Breathless is one of the earliest influential examples of French new-wave cinema, along with Francois Truffaut's The 400 Blows and Alain Rene's Hiroshima Mon no Amour. I think all three of them are available on Criterion as well for you to pick up, so please do so uh, if you get a chance. Uh, trust me, you won't go wrong with any of those films. The film Breathless has a bold visual style along with incredibly intelligent, fun, unsettling, charming, devilish conversations and some fun sequences and fun moments until the inevitable ending. Um, So there we go. I won't give away too much more than that. Just get ready to sit back and relax this Friday as Steve Morris and I dive into one of my favorite films starring one of my favorite actors, Breathless. With Jean-Paul Belmondo, and if you want to pick up the film, you can do so at our website www.cine-files.net, which is where you can pick up any of the films that we talk about on the Cinefiles. All right, I'll see you this Friday. Take care. New York Herald Tribune. New York Herald Tribune. you <laughs>
0: Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore the themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is John Rook. I'm a writer, producer, and host uh, in San Diego, California. And up right now in L.A. for a little bit, Um, but hanging out to do this great film uh, with Steve Morris. And very thankful that we were able to make time in our schedule. To talk about one of my favorite films for so many reasons here on the cinema.
0: Well, and it's so funny. You know, I have my little spiel at the beginning of every episode hmm. about the filmmaking, the themes, the influence, all those things. Yeah. Well, this film definitely qualifies in all the categories. It is yeah. the filmmaking technique, the history of it, the influence it has on all films going forward is tremendous. And that film, of course, is Jean Luc
1: Godard's Breathless. Yeah. We have entered the French New Wave. finally it's taken us five years you know the french are very very prickly people i'm just joking Uh, you got to earn your way in there but no
0: (laughs) Um, i mean it's it's so funny like the uh you know, every every week we, we talk about a movie and I do yeah. my best to pretend to be an expert on that particular film. <laughs> and and on some of the movies, like things, you know, there are things like Jaws and Die Hard and Raiders or even The Godfather or Citizen Kane or Lawrence of Arabia, where I already knew a lot about those movies. Yeah. I am not an expert in the French New Wave at mm-hmm. all. And Mm -hmm. so I've done my best to do some research, but it's, you know, this is not, I've seen many of the films and that was kind of it, but I've tried to do some research. And of course, there are two reasons why we're doing this film today. One is it's a Patreon pick. Jono Scharfer Carter, I may be close to pronouncing your name correctly, but I'm pretty (laughs) sure I'm still not getting it right. It's one of his Patreon picks. So before we do anything else, Jono, I'd love to hear why you felt the cinephiles should tackle Breathless.
1: Hello and welcome once again. My name is John O. Schaefer-Cotter and I'm a filmmaker
0: and creative director in Santa Cruz, California. A couple decades ago, the quote I put on my MySpace and Facebook was, In order to criticize a movie, you have to make another movie. And I've foolishly been mirroring that sentiment ever since. To be honest, Stephen John, I don't exactly know why I like this movie. But I'm excited for you two to teach me. So that's what I think about Breathless and I love hearing what you two think. Thanks in advance. Okay. Thank cool. you, and it's a great pick, John. But the other reason, of course, yeah. we're doing this film is that we lost this one of the two stars, Jean-Paul Belmondo, uh, yeah. just last week. And John, I get the sense that this was a really special guy for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, you know, we've texted about it off air uh, as well, and i and I tweeted about it when he passed, and he passed on the same day as Michael Kenneth Williams. So to lose two wow. incredible actors on the same day at different ends of the age spectrum, but with Um, lasting legacies of their work both as people and as actors Um, it it was a hell of a one-two punch uh, on that day Um, Jean-Paul Belmondo had been suffering uh, a lot of health issues since the early 2000s with strokes and what have you so um, his passing was not necessarily a surprise Um, it had been coming for quite some time but that being said this is a guy that when you were when I was a young punk kid in my 20s getting into film getting into cinema and my friend was giving me his mini uh, uh film school treatment there when I was living in Charlottesville this is one of those films that when you see it if it connects to you it puts the zap in you but good and when you see Jean-Paul Belmondo's ease of performance ease of coolness throughout the movie it just kind of blows you away and uh, opens the door to the possibilities of French cinema, at least it did for me. And some might argue that this is a film that has a little more of an American approach to French cinema, or there's American homages throughout the movie to make it feel like a little bit of a Franco-American film, but it's still very much lauded as a French film and respected and loved and revered as a French film. And Belmondo's performance is one of the number one reasons people cite uh, why this film still endures uh, what almost 60 years No over 60 years later uh, Still enduring with us As we watch these films And I don't know There's just something about him And what he was able to do He never acted in an American movie He never came over And became a lead in an American movie He rejected doing that He was a guy that very much was like He said like I, I like to do national films Not international films We saw what happened to Italy When their actors were going over to America Or they were trying to do more I like to make national films and although he started out with these kind of now revered classic films, he was very must, much a populist, Belmondo was. Actually, ironically, became very fam- even more famous for playing police characters for a majority hmm. of, the, of his career. And when his career was over, when he passed away, uh, which was only a few weeks ago, um, if not a couple weeks ago, I think as we're recording this, the, uh, the, the National Order of Police there in France made him an honorary policeman, beca- they said. Oh, wow you portrayed us so well in these films that we kind of see you as one of ours, even though you never served a day as an actual policeman. So, you know, I know here in America, that's, you know, police, and we're, we're having our own conversation about this, but that's a hell of an honor to receive absolutely, for someone like that in France. Um, and, 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 you know, this is a guy that didn't intend, intend to become an actor. He was, he wanted to be a pink, oh, sorry, he wanted to be a boxer. He was into sports. Uh, he comes from two very artistic uh, parents. His mom was a uh, painter. His dad was a sculptor. Mm. He's when he was buried, he was buried and cremated. His ashes and he was buried next to his father uh, there in, in the cemetery. Uh, but you know, very, very comes from very artistic. But he rejected that for quite some time. Went into the military, and it was a good, he was a good boxer before he went in the military. Actually, he had a bunch of first round knockouts, oh, and then wow. he said he stopped being a boxer because I didn't like the look of my face in the mirror. My face was changing, he Mm. said. And I didn't like how that was happening. So he went into the military. And when he was serving in the military, the National Service there in North Africa, uh, he was so tired of it that he hit himself in the nose with the butt of his own rifle to get himself uh, kind of sent home and kicked out of the military. Then he went into a a drama school in his teenage years. And that's when he started to kind of really embrace the possibilities of acting. He studied under Raymond Giron and then attended the Conservatoire of Dramatic Arts when he was 20. He studied there for three years. uh, And the story goes that he would have won Best Actor, except he did a sketch where he made fun of the teachers and the (laughs) establishment and the system that was going on there. So they gave him an honorary mention. And he tells it that a riot broke out in the school with (laughs) anger that he did win, of course. You got to build yourself up. Um, (laughs) But after he graduated, he was taking bit parts and it wasn't until uh, him and Godard uh, hooked up for Breathless that he really kind of got his first lead, first big lead role, and this is what launched him onto the national stage. And he worked consistently throughout. He worked with Sophia Loren in Two Women, which is the mm. one of, which is the uh, film that Sophia Loren, Loren won Best Actress for. He worked consistently throughout. He did some of the French New Wave stuff. Uh, You know, him and Gene Seberg, who are the co-stars in Breathless, they came back together later in in life and did a movie as well. Uh, But he never quite veered back into that fully. Uh, Pierre LeFou is one of the greatest ones that he's done in that kind of like still exploring the French New Wave type of approach to filmmaking. And as I said, as he got older, started veering away from it and jumping more into these kind of um, films that are a little more populist. Uh, in the 70s and 80s. He even started his own production company. Um, And of course, he was a contemporary of Alain Delon. For those of you who don't know the French actor Alain Delon, go and watch a bunch of gangster films with Alain Delon. Trust me, it'll change your life. You're a cinephile in any way, shape, or form. And because Alain Delon does such a good job with his production company, uh, uh, Belmondo, in the 70s, started his own production company to create uh, films for himself. And later in life, he ended up winning a Cesar Award, which is, in essence, the Best Actor Award From a film he did in 1989. Uh, So these are the things that you see his accomplishments, the amount of people he worked with, Truffaut, he worked with David Niven, Catherine Deneuve. These are the people that he worked with throughout his whole life, Mia Farrow. uh, It's Raquel Welch. Just so many people throughout the 70s and 80s that he worked with. Um, Another great film of his from the 80s, early 80s is The Professional. Uh, It is not Leon The Professional, it's just (laughs) The Professional, uh, which is a fantastic film if you haven't seen that. Um, and he also came back to the stage later in life as well. After a 25-year hiatus from the stage, he came back. He played Cyrano de Berger. He played wow. Cyrano in Cyrano de Berger. He did a number of uh, plays there in the uh, early 90s uh, as well. And as I said, he won the Cesar Award in 1988, I'm sorry, 88 for a film uh, uh, that is called The Itinerary of a Spoiled Child. Uh, he starred in it and co-produced it. Uh, so. He had some issues uh, with uh, strokes, and as I said, he was getting on in years. In 2009, he did his last film, A Man and His Dog, and he played a character who had a a disability and a difficulty in walking and speaking, which he was actually going through himself. And in 2011, he officially retired uh, from acting and uh, stepped aside. But throughout his career, he was nominated for two BAFTA awards. He received the Palme d'Or at the 2011 Cannes Film Festival, The Golden Lion at the 2016 Venice Film Festival, at the Cesar in 2017. And in mm. 2009, the Los Angeles Film Critics Association gave him a Career Achievement Award, and he won a Lifetime Achievement Award at the 42nd Cesar Awards in 2017. So just an incredible legacy throughout And so many critics have spoken about how he influenced Cool, along with James oh, Dean, yeah. along with Marlon Brand, along with so many people, Steve. He's one of those good people that the charisma
0: just pops off the screen. Like Mm -hmm. you can't, it's really both of them. Honestly, both of them in this film, him and Gene Seberg, you you can't stop looking at them. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like you said how you came to the film uh, through in, through your friend in Charlottesville. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, for me, it was in film school. Um, mm. The first semester of film school, we sort of had a class of the history of the first fifty years ish of film, starting in the you know the eighteen nineties and then moving in all the way up through World War II. And yeah. then the second half, the second semester, we had the next fifty years, and we got to the French New Wave. We watched some Truffaut, and then we watched Four Hundred Blows, and then we watched Breathless, and I did not like it. Um, and I had not so funny because I don't like 400 blows but go ahead yes I I, I actually don't like 400 blows that much either (laughs) okay Um, which is why I've never been a French new wave person you know and I haven't spent that much time exploring it and I hadn't seen breathless until this last week so Mm -hmm. that's 20 plus years later and I had an entirely different reaction to it this time I I, it's it's not my kind of film in a lot of ways you know there's so much time spent on the cinephiles, you know, you know what my value systems are. I love yeah. hard work, craftsmanship, attention to detail, planning, all those things, and that <laughs> none of that is what Breathless is. None but, of that is a French New Wave. Yes, it's no, it, 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 so like it was harder for me to kind of wrap my head around it. But yeah. once I have, like, I, it really is a, re- a really remarkable film. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's still like a film that I'm going to relish and go back and see many times. But man. There is a lot here, and a lot where the in you know we talk about the influence it has on us today. Well, yeah. this yeah. film is as influential. It is it is right up there. It's almost at the Citizen Kane level of influential. I believe mm-hmm. you yeah. know it yeah. is absolutely huge for what comes after the French New Wave. And so, let me I will give mm-hmm. you my briefest of summaries <laughs> of what the French New Wave is. Sure. Uh, it's it started in the fifties. The sort of first thing that happened was an essay in 1948 by Alex- Alexander Astruc called The Birth of a New Avant-Garde and the camera style. And, and this is what – I this is how – the first thing I would say about it. This is a movement that started with film critics. Truffaut, mm-hmm. Godard, all these guys, they were critics before they were directors. And this is the first moment at which film really starts to look at film as an art form. Mm -hmm. Film was really a business. And although there's brilliant films made up to this point, there was sort of a level of disrespect, you know, in terms of, you know, in terms of comparing it to literature, or music or painting, it was like film was commercial, and it wasn't that kind of thing. And these critics in France started to look at it and go, no, no, this is These are auteurs. These guys making films are brilliant, brilliant artists. And uh, in 1954, there's an essay from Francois Tufo. This is a cachet de cinema, which is this magazine where these critics have come together. Um, And this is what starts to change the way they are looking at film. And then the strange thing happens, which is at the end of the 50s, these guys who were critics actually start to become filmmakers and and normally i would go you you know we've talked a lot about the cheap seats and Mm we talked a lot about people who talk about making movies but haven't actually made it and so i would have gone like okay good luck you critics (laughs) you you try to actually make a movie and of course they did and they made uh, this whole bunch of remarkable films what's weird to me is there's this weird set of contradictions that are the french new wave one of them is that they wanted to deconstruct the formalized nature of film, you know, the, the well-made film, the everything in its place, everything beautiful, everything pristine. They wanted to pull that apart, but they also really, really, were fascinated and admired these American directors, particularly genre directors like Alfred Hitchcock, like John Ford. They loved Orson Welles at a time when Orson Welles was not the most popular person in the world. So on the one hand, they want to deconstruct things. On the other hand, they're revering things. They want to work in a documentary style. And this, they're really influenced by another uh, whole film movement that we haven't discussed on the cinephiles, which is Italian neorealism. Yeah. Um, And what Italian neorealism here'll be even the briefer version of what that is, is post World War II in Italy, they didn't have any money. And there was a and they were really distrustful of these big romantic narratives, because they felt these big romantic narratives are part of what led them into World War II And they wanted to look at more ordinary life. And since they didn't have any money, and they wanted to look at ordinary life, we have this set of films, which are shot on real locations very documentary style not a lot of cutting and it was just like here is ordinary life and there's some remarkable Mm -hmm. films there so we have this that influence we have the hitchcock john ford orson wells howard hawks influence we have the deconstruct cinema and formalization influence and all of those things come together to create a style of film that's more improvisational dealing with subjects that hollywood wasn't really looking at it is more real life it deconstructs filmic technique like using jump cuts and crossing the line and you know narratives that aren't traditionally structured and this is how we get into what is the french new wave
1: yeah and steve you're right about the um you have to kind of be built for it. Like, I feel like you can come to terms with French New Wave, but I think you have to organically be built to like it to in order to really fully enjoy it right off the bat. You know what I'm saying? And I totally respect what you're okay. saying about the precision. And the. yeah, I agree with you. And, and but this is, I think, why I loved it so much. And so because I'm, I'm not always that kind of person that likes it. I, I like to fly by the seat of my pants. I like to go live on yeah. the spur of the moment. And, and so I sure. enjoy the way they do are, are the jump cuts. We, I mean, if you analyze this film like a regular film, you could absolutely destroy the narrative from just from, from the jump, just the narrative of how this all comes about, how he's able to just freely steal cars all over Paris. No problem. How he's able to just kind of, you know, take people's keys and go into their houses and whatever. Like you, there's so much to deconstruct here uh, that you could poke holes in the plot overall, but that's not the point of this movie. The point of this movie and the point a lot of the French New Wave is just to show the kind of disgust they had with the norm, with the system, with what had come before, with the oh. There's even a shot at Maurice Chevalier in the movie. You know, these are these things they're trying to destroy what had been these kind of old statues, or old kind of ways of doing things, and reconstruct. And the same thing was happening. Um, In America, with, you know, with Elie Kazan and The Method and all of that, that was changing how people perceived films and film acting and what they appreciated. So just like Italian neorealism was pushing back against this kind of romanticism in Italian cinema, so uh, did the French New Wave push back against this kind of regimented French approach to film uh, led by a bunch of old actors. And of course, in America, the same thing, breaking through showing you actors that are giving you real, guttural, organic, primal uh, performances in their work that feels very real. You know, all three of these movements are connected yeah. by the word realism, the idea, yeah. the seeking of realism, right? Because I think World War II woke a lot of people up, and Korea, the Korean War after that, and other things going on in the world in terms of global economy, would have it woke people up to the truth of what's, really happening out there and, and ramifications of of what happens when you go to when you create yeah it was great that we won you beat the nazis but you know if you watch band of brothers you see that ptsd yeah. didn't come around after vietnam it's been around for quite some time and how that influenced generations after i you know i don't want to go too deep i also am not a french new wave expert steve i just love the french new wave
0: novels. well And and this is the thing, and I'm going to say something that's really Mm. weird, is I have strong opinions about filmmaking. Obviously, Mm. I teach filmmaking, and I teach this is the way you should do it. And it's Mm -hmm. so important on a regular basis to remind yourself when you have very strong opinions that you are wrong. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's like is that just because I say, hey, this is the method in which I think you should make films, there are a whole bunch of films that don't do exactly the opposite of what I say to do, and they're great. And so that's the, there isn't one way to go about it. I mean, I might have strong disagreements with how Coppola handled Apocalypse Now and things that he did that I think were immoral, but I can't argue with the results. That's an amazing film. Yeah. And that's something to keep in mind. And The French New Wave, I don't know what is the most important film movement in the history of film, but man, mm. the French New Wave is so... And, and, and I think what's interesting, like you mentioned World War II, this is the generation that didn't fight in World War II. Yes. You know, right. this is the emergence of a, of a new generation that's pushing back against yeah. what the World War II generation was saying things should be. And I really think on some level, the French New Wave is the beginning of the 60s. Yes, you know?
1: a thousand percent. And then like
0: you think about like the style of the sixties, like the Beatles in Hamburg, they were dressed in leather jackets and looked like Elvis. Right. Then they went to Paris in like sixty one or sixty-two, and that which is right after this. And that's where the mop tops and the whole style that all came from France in the early sixties. You know, how much influence does this film have Mm -hmm. on the sixties and then on filmmaking in the late sixties and seventies? It's like huge.
1: It's well and also huge. yeah and you're right and you're right and also um, what you mentioned earlier this idea of a reappreciation of these american films as classics this reappreciation the cahier du cinema did constantly uh, promoted these films and it c- coincided with the fact that there was an influx of influx of these american films that were finally being allowed to be shown in paris and other cities in france so that young or, you know, teenagers or people in their 20s uh, could go and see these movies, these American movies, and be influenced by them, revere them, respect them, um, and have a European approach to it. By that, I mean, I'm, at that t- I mean we're still a, a relatively new country in the history of the world. You look at France, it's been around for multiple centuries, and what they've experienced and endured. Their idea of art, if they put a stamp on what is art, what isn't art, it makes you take a moment to, to, to kind of reevaluate your perception of the work, even if you're an American. Even if you're an American director, may be surprised by the kind of appreciation that your films or your film is getting and your work is getting. Yeah, um, And this is, I think, what leads to Citizen Kane becoming reappreciated right. as a classic film as the greatest film ever made. It is very much France.
0: Well, and it's also why we today revere Hitchcock in a way that he wasn't revered Mm -hmm. when he was making those great movies. Great point. Because yep. people just went, well, this is a genre direction uh, director. Um, here's some pre-production. It's a very sure. strange journey to making this film. Um, <laughs> the first thing is, is that the beginning of the French New Wave is really 400 Blows, 1959 Truffaut. That's the first yes. big hit. Truffaut has said that he thought Jean-Luc Godard was the most talented of the whole group. Wow. Yeah. Um okay. And this starts with a Truffaut script. There is actually a true story about some guy who stole a car and killed a cop, and Truffaut mm. starts working on a treatment with someone else. Godard likes the idea. And then Godard has met this producer, uh, Georges de Beauregard. I'm going to butcher all French uh, names.
1: <laughs> Apologies, ahead of of time.
0: Apologies to the to the entire Fran- French culture. Um, <laughs> From both of us, because I will do the same. Yes. So here's the story <laughs> of how Godard met uh, Beauregard. He walked up to him and said, Your last film is shit. That is the first <laughs> thing he said to him. And Beauregard apparently went, Well, that's an interesting perspective, and immediately hired him to write a script. <laughs> so now Godard is working on writing this script for uh, Georges de Beauregard and then he's not getting anywhere it doesn't mm-hmm. sound like Godard is the kind of guy that will like here's a job and he will now settle down and do that job that's not how this guy works and halfway through failing to write this script he comes up to him and says you know what I could write this script but I'd rather you produce Truffaut's story breathless and I direct it uh-huh. and the guy said okay um and then the next thing that he does is Truffaut hands him the treatment for the script and godard throws it out (laughs) and he goes you know what instead of having a script let's just make up the dialogue on the day so now he writes up a three-page treatment and that Mm -hmm. is all the crew had that's all the cast had um And what's funny is basically this shot, this film was shot entirely guerrilla. They didn't have permits. Yeah. They didn't have permission to shoot anywhere. But apparently you do need, I think, and I might not be entirely correct on this, but you do need a basic permit to just make a film in France. Right, And right. in order to get this permit, you have to have a script. <laughs> But all they had was these three pages. And so the AD just faked a script. He just got pages from other scripts, put it together, handed (laughs) it in. And that's how they got their permit to start filming this thing. And it was shot in August and September of 59. And the first day of shooting, the cast and the crew met in a cafe, talked about what they're going to shoot, started shooting. About two hours in, Godard said he ran out of ideas and he just sent everyone home. (laughs) And this became sort of the regular style that there were days where they shot 15 minutes, came wow. in, did 15 minutes. And he said, yeah, I, I don't have any more ideas. Go home. <laughs> and then there were other days where they'd shoot 12 hours straight. Right. There were days that he would just call in sick, like the night before, say, you know, I don't feel good. Let's cancel tomorrow's shoot. Which is insane for a filmmaker and apparently uh, Georges de Beauregard was walking through Paris and saw Godard just sitting, smoking and drinking at a cafe on the day that he had called in sick and they got into a fist fight. Wow. (laughs) Because this guy's losing money. Not that this is an expensive film, obviously it's not, but still, you're producing a movie – well, it's yeah. so funny to me is that you're producing a movie that where it started with this guy said, your film is shit.
1: <laughs> and now he's not even he's just canceling shoot days. Well, this is what happens, Steve, when you don't have a a more regimented approach to filmmaking. You just exactly. go to wake up one day and I just I don't feel like it today. I'm not inspired today.
0: Well, and and this is the thing that Crazy. the vast yeah. majority of movies that are made this way suck. Yeah, you know, it's true. I you know, I'm standing by that this is not the correct way to make a film, <laughs> but I can't argue with the results. It was also by the way mostly shot chrono- uh, chronologically and part of the reason is you can't improvise a movie and shoot it out of sequence. Yeah. Because you don't know what happened in the scene before. Right. Right? So Good you kind of have to shoot it in sequence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh would you like to get into the film?
1: Yeah, let's do it. I'm so curious to see how you're going to handle this. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it getting on getting in this car with you uh because i think we've stolen this car so let's get into it let's have some fun with this well
0: it's gonna be hard because a i can't say every line of dialogue b i can't cut to them saying the lines of dialogue that much (laughs) because it's in french and c it's like what do these words mean so much of the what is what's happening mean so i think we're gonna it's gonna be a different journey through this film than how we normally handle things uh by the way the first thing we see is that this movie is dedicated to monogram pictures and what is Monogram Pictures? It's a mm-hmm. small studio in the U.S. that made westerns in the Bowery Boys movies. Wow. Ah. So right that. there, oh. that's weird. Okay. Okay. Um, and we hear jazzy music, and the very first thing we see is a very sexy image of a woman, like an advertisement in a newspaper. And we hear, after all, I'm an asshole. That's the first thing we hear. Right off the bat. Right off the we have a sexy image, and after all, I'm an asshole. Right off the bat, this movie is already into areas that you wouldn't see in a Hollywood film, right? Right. And then we reveal Michel Jean-Paul Belmondo, and what you said is this guy is he is so cool. Yeah, man. Um, smoking that big non-filtered, you know, Lucky cigarette or something, and you could already see the Bogartness of him, mm-hmm. of the way that Godard is filming him. Yeah. He's got the hat and the cigarette, and then he wipes his lips. What is that? Do, do you have a thought of this gesture we're going to see over and over again in the
1: film? I think there's a lot of ways you can take it. I think it's a sexy thing to do, to wipe the lips with a thumb like that, because he's not doing it quick. He's doing it slow to kind of like feel the lips on his thumb. And of course, uh, Gene or uh, uh, Patricia, is that her name? Patricia? She does that at the, at the end of the movie as a kind of goodbye to him. To me, it's just a sensual thing.
0: I think sensual is exactly the right word. It is mm. very sensual, as is the whole film. Yes. The whole, and I would say the whole film is sensual in a way that maybe we haven't seen, you know, mm-hmm. like picturing the way that Orson Welles shot Rita Hayworth in Lady from Shanghai. Like that right. has some elements of the sensuality. And, and of course, Orson Welles, I'm sure – I am sure that one of those uh, new wave critics wrote an essay on lady from Shanghai. That is exactly yeah. the kind of movie that they would be interested in. Yes. And the next thing we see is that he's doing something with some woman and that what it is, is they're stealing a car
1: and together in coats. Yeah.
0: yeah she, she's sort of, you know, being a, a lookout for him or something. He hot wires the car, he gets in, we hear a police siren, which is something we're going to hear throughout the film. Many, mm-hmm. many police sirens in the background that aren't necessarily after him, but I think it creates that tension. Right. And the first thing she says is, take me with you. Right. Which I also think is significant because part of thematically what this film is about is men and women coming together and in under what circumstances. And he mm-hmm. does not take him her with, with him. Yeah. And now we're into this again. This is groundbreaking filmmaking. We have these POV shots of him driving. He's singing. He's talking to himself. And the camera is continually jump cutting, which means we're just leaping forward in time. The jump cutting is not within a particular rhythm. It doesn't have a particular sense to it. It feels far more organic and random, I would say Mm -hmm. in the way Mm -hmm. that this is done. And what's funny is, was there ever a film where you heard someone muttering to themselves the way they do when they're totally alone?
1: Yeah. Again, the realism, right? Yeah. This is because right off the bat, look, first of all, this is why you cast the person that you cast to jump right off the bat and get him into a situation where he's stealing a car. We've got to immediately like this guy, even though he's committing a crime here, and the idea of the woman like wanting to go with him and him being like not about it. This also lays the groundwork that this is a guy who only wants things he can't have. The things hmm. that are easier for him to get, he does not um, value or cherish. The things that are harder for him to get, he wants. And this once and this speaks to the dysfunctionality of who he is as a person and how he probably sees himself as well. And maybe even a grander conversation about how this generation saw themselves compared. To the other generation because the other generation kept reminding them as you said steve we fought in the war we right. fought in the war what have you done what have you done so the natural sense of not feeling as important or as revered as the generation that came before you kind of pervades the young culture it still does i think generation to generation oh, yeah. it's still an issue so you see that here with him and the fatalistic approach he has to the world and so when he's getting in that car and talking to himself, singing to himself, and then saying, oh, you don't do that with a Peugeot, or you don't, oh, it's a work area, I'm going to go slow, you got to go around, and it's, it's his exuberance, his cockiness, his feeling himself, that is what signals him, as we're about to see, to the cops, which is what starts this whole thing. It's funny you mentioned World War II and the, the
0: difference with generational thing, and we, mm. the Beatles have already come up, but now it just occurred to me, I don't think yeah. there's any hard days night. Without breathless, even though stylistically, they're totally different. But like in terms of the generational thing and one generation Mm -hmm. speaking to another and the kind of cool and the lack of understanding, all that stuff, that's hard days night, you know, a great point. So I I, I'm certainly not going to say every line that's in this film. Because why would you, anyone want that? I've tried to highlight some lines that I found okay. interesting. One of the things he says very in early in the film as he's driving is he says, <laughs> I collect the dough. <laughs> ask Patricia if it is yes or no, then, and never completes that sentence. <laughs> Patricia is Gene Seberg, who's going to be the yeah. other main character in this film. What question was he going to ask her? Yes or no? Well, this is the French New Wave. It's about presenting <laughs>
1: things and not g- giving you the answers. That's for you to decide.
0: Then <laughs> there's another moment that's really interesting where he turns to camera and yeah. speaks directly to camera. Turns yes. to camera and says, if you don't like the shore. Si vous pas la mer, then turns to camera and says, if you don't like the mountains. Si vous pas la montagne, and again, if you don't like the city. Si vous pas la ville, then get stuffed. Allez vous faire foot. We're breaking the fourth wall, which is funny because actually the last film we did, Duck Soup, with the Marx <laughs> Brothers, also Groucho breaks the fourth wall all the time. But like that is, A, it's unlike anything I think we've seen in film in terms yeah. of the way he's breaking the fourth wall. And B, I think it. there's something about Michel that he knows what he wants in a weird way. He's mm-hmm. very clear on who he is, I think. Yes. You know? I don't know exactly what he wants, Mm -hmm. but I feel that he knows. Do you know what I mean? You feel that he knows what he wants?
1: You feel like he's, uh, yeah, okay, all right. I I don't even know if this is a character that that can know what he wants. It's just a character that is flowing from one adventure to the next, from one moment to the next. There's a fatalism in him. And I think at the end of the movie, when he says, you know, I'm just tired. It's because he's just one of these guys that, that's built with this engine, and the engine has to burn out. You know, even um, James Dean in East of Eden, James Dean in mm. in Rebel Without a Cause, you know, those moments where he's like with Raymond Massey, and he's having that kind of thing. And, and the scene with his yeah. brother, and the scene with Julie Harris, in the, I think at the, in, the, in the theme park, but also later on uh, in Rebel Without a Cause, it's like, you're tearing me apart. These, this is right. this kind of like youthful fatality or fatalistic rather approach to the world. And he feels like kind of fatalist. You know what? I want to change
0: the way I said it. I think, I don't think it's that he knows what he wants. Okay. I think he does what he wants Mm -hmm. is that he, this Yeah. correct. He just, that's, he does, he just does the thing. You know what I mean? And many of those things he does maybe aren't that safe or don't make sense or counter, but that's, he just like, he does it. And one thing we see as he's driving
1: is that he opens up the glove box and there is a gun in this car. Well, because the person they took the gun off of, it looked like either an off-duty policeman or some sort of National Guard guy. Because he had like a, a, you know, like Mm. a striped belt, like a crossing guard belt on him and a hat. So it looked like the car belonged to someone of some sort of police uh, official or something like that.
0: Um, We hear something that sounds like a gunshot and it's very jarring. (laughs) And he gets through the construction work, and now he sees motorcycle cops following him. He gets off the road. Cops go by. So we have a moment of, oh, maybe he's okay. He lifts up the hood of his car, and then the cop, motorcycle cop, comes back, says, hold it right there. And then we have these shots where the camera tilts down past his head and then the camera pans along his arm to the gun and then we see the chamber of the revolver turn and we hear the gunshot i think the way the camera is moving is in a way that as far as i know has never been seen in film before mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. the camera it's not just that it's subjective we've seen subjective cameras before but this camera is like the camera is examining the scene yes Do you know what i mean mm-hmm. It, is, it has become its own character in a really new way.
1: Which I think was established with him talking to the camera. Yeah. With him talking to the camera earlier and then also us seeing the POV of him driving, we're establishing the camera as a separate character in the film. So that makes total sense what you're saying, Steve, when we see the camera operate in this manner in this scene. You know, and we cut right to the police officers fall. And we don't see the blood right. spurred or any pack or anything. He just falls into the underbrush uh there and and then we cut to him just running across the field it's mm-hmm. so weird well and par- part of it is
0: this is necessity is the mother of inventionists they couldn't afford to do a squib right, you know, right. they don't have any money and so this is the they invented techniques in order to yeah. do things like in part i should you know a spoiler but the jump cuts were never intended
1: yeah the, the yeah, jump yeah. cuts
0: weren't planned it was and it's so funny because over and over again in film school, I have students who they shoot some big long shot, realize yeah. their shot is way too long and boring, and they have no coverage. And so they do a bunch of jump cuts. And I always say, this is a sign of you that you've made a mistake. It's so obvious <laughs> that you messed up and this is not working. And that is exactly what Goddard has done. And it totally works. Yes. Agreed. It, and part of it goes to like one of the important rules of. Uh, you must follow the rules unless you're a genius so if you want to <laughs> make the rules you should probably be a genius in which case it right. might be okay <laughs> and now we're in paris and we hear that great jazz theme that is so recognizable and so like sums up these characters and he gets to paris and he gets a newspaper which is something we're going to see over and over and over again and it took me a while to go oh, he wants to see if he's in the paper. Yeah. That's why he yeah. keeps getting cool. newspapers, which eventually he will be. It's funny. There's this moment where he gets a newspaper, he's walking across the street, and the paper is just sort of flowing as he's walking. I'm like, man, even the way he reads the paper is interesting. It's very cool. Yeah, It's very cool. And then he uses it to wipe his shoes.
1: And, then <laughs> and throws he, the paper away. Then throws it away. Yep. Which I think is symbolic. I'm going to use you for what I need to use you oh. for. Then I'm tossing you away. Again, this is the behavior is there. Uh, there is almost a sociopathic approach to the world because this is how he sees everybody almost, except or maybe Patricia uh, in the final moments of the movie. But everyone else is uh, is a means to an end for what he needs. Antonio, I need that money. Um, I need this car, so I'm going to steal it. I, I, I got to I, I shoot you because you're in the way of where I'm trying to get to. I don't care if you're a cop. So everything is necessity, and I toss you away when I don't need to.
0: Well, and I want sex with this girl. I mean, like, the, yes. you know, that yeah. and, and to what, what his feelings are about her and even what her feelings are about him. But we spent a lot of time trying yeah. to get to the bottom of that. And he goes to like a hotel, asks about this woman, goes into her room, searches uh, the room, and we hear him say, Girls never have cash. <laughs> so he is already, we know what this guy is looking for. He's a cat. What's so interesting is going like, are either of these people, good people, you mm, know? Cause yeah. I think at the beginning, he's clearly a cat. Um, right. Although we like him a lot. And I think there's, yeah. a, as we meet Gene Seberg, there's a certain amount of time where you go like, Oh, why is she being hanging out with this guy? But then there's another point where you kind of go, Oh, <laughs> how, <laughs> how do I feel about her? Right. But now he's with a different girl. He's in her room. She is in her pajamas. Her pajamas are torn. The actress was very unhappy about having to wear torn pajamas and very unhappy that Godard wouldn't let her put makeup on. What? She's beautiful. She doesn't need makeup. Wow. She's stunning. But what's so interesting, but think about this movie you're shooting in a little tiny room. It doesn't, I mean, she gets hired to act in a movie and she shows up on this set. There's no lighting, by the way, there was Mm -hmm. no lights. Uh, There's no dolly. The crew is minimal. You're shooting in a tiny room and he says, put on these ripped pajamas and lie in bed and it's like what the fuck have i gotten myself into you know what i mean (laughs) and it's very very clear that he is using her to get money
1: oh yeah absolutely he's seducing her the whole time to let her put a guard down so he can get the money but also i love the thing the pourquoi, the pourquoi that's on the wall the why this is this is important because i think this throughout the movie this is once again this idea of questioning of the existence of this generation why what are we here for what's our purpose what are we doing you know why and it isn't until later with the civil rights that that's when everything starts to really kind of cement itself later on in the 60s but at this point at the beginning of the 60s we're seeing this these people asking these questions this generation asking itself what is its purpose you know and we'll see that throughout with Patricia when we get to Patricia as well this idea, of why? What? What is? What is? Why is life? What is life? Why are we alive? What's the purpose? Well, John, I'll tell you. <laughs> all right. Finally,
0: um, <laughs> um, <laughs> there's the one in, in meaning of life where it's like, oh yes, the meaning of life. Yes, try to eat well. Do this. Get a little <laughs> bit of exercise. And blah blah blah. I'm like, all right, that's it. Um. the other th- interesting thing is in this scene we start to get these references to movies that she worked yeah. in the movies but she doesn't work in the movies now because you have to sleep around and there's right. talk of being a script girl or working at the movie studio and then the next question is She asked Michelle, Have you ever been a gigolo? And I think there's a connection between her saying you have to sleep around to work in the movies and her asking him if you've ever been a gigolo and the fact that this is a movie that is to some degree about movies. You yeah. know, it is aware of its moviness and mm-hmm. it's making a statement. And you said the why and what is the meaning of life and like the. What are movies and why wow. and, and what is it? to A gigolo is a male prostitute and she's talking about having to sleep around to get in movies and we're in a movie. I think there's all sorts of layers of stuff in here.
1: Oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And how much um, do you have to pimp yourself out in order to get a movie made, in order to get people to watch a movie or get critics to like your movies? Maybe there's even an element of that.
0: And of course, then he's watching himself in the mirror, mm-hmm. again, <laughs> wipes his lips. And his answer to the question about being a gigolo is, I wouldn't mind. And then there's this moment, he's asking for money. He asks for 5,000 francs, which he doesn't have. Then she gives him 500 francs, and then she goes to get dressed. And while she goes to get dressed, he goes to the closet and steals some more money from her.
1: I think what's brilliant here is she gives him 500. He gives it back to her. Oh, he He does. He gives it back to her. And so in a way, he's trying to portray to her, at least in her presence, that he is a person who will, oh, if you can't give me the, you know, like, I want this much. You can't I don't want to take, if this is all you have to give me, you need it probably more than I do. So he's trying to be like a good guy or look like good to her. And then while she's putting on her dress and distracted and covered up, he steals all her money. So in a way, he can almost try to claim that if later she accuses him, well, it wasn't me, it was someone else. You yeah, I give you me back anything. the money. Right, I give you back your money. So yeah, it's that kind of playing both sides that he does
0: throughout the whole movie well and this is this thing we talked about since the beginning of the cinephiles is that you could have a character and you can watch them do terrible things and mm-hmm. you could totally like them yes and it's because yeah. he's so charismatic and he's so interesting and and he is a bad person in many many ways like yeah. for instance, let me ask you this question does yeah. he have any remorse for killing
1: that cop no i don't think uh, so either i don't think and, and the thing is and the way these films are effective in helping us like, like these people is we don't see the cop's wife and kids right. now who are destitute or have no money and no ability to pay bills. We don't see this young girl show up and she has no money and like she can't pay a rent or whatever. So it's easy to like someone when they don't show you the consequences on film of what their actions were down the road. So it, although you know he's doing bad stuff, the film takes care of him by not right. showing the ramifications of it all. But yes, I don't think he has any remorse about anything he does until Patricia tells him he calls the cops. She called the cops.
0: You know what else I think is important is that evil can be likable. I mean, if evil couldn't be likable, then evil people couldn't gain power. Right. You know what I mean? Like there was a certain charm. You know, the idea that like all people that are bad are ugly, disgusting, horrible, and we would never (laughs) want to be around them. That would be really nice because then we could just, Point them out. Oh, those are bad people. But that's not how it, that's not how it works. Evil can be right. very charming. And we have our first scene where he's asking for someone. This is Mr. Tolman Shanoff or something like that. And this is something he's going to be doing throughout the movie. He is trying to find people that owe him money, that can help him out. And then he goes to look for Patricia. And we see Gene Seberg in her New York Herald Tribune t-shirt in the middle of the street yelling out, in English, New York Herald Tribune. New York Herald Tribune. Because she is trying to sell newspapers.
1: By the way, do you think Mia Farrell modeled her hair after? and hundred percent. Well, okay.
0: apparently this hairstyle was <laughs> so influential. Like this was a world changing hairstyle in fashion. Wow. Wow. This was known as the Gene Seberg breathless haircut. <laughs> Yeah, it was really, as you know, I'm very into fashion. Yes, Um,
1: yes, very true.
0: But yeah, no, it's it's very, it's hugely influential. And I want to tell you a little bit about her origin story because it is fascinating and horrible. She's American. She's from Iowa. And it starts with Otto Preminger, who's doing a worldwide search for someone to play Joan of Arc for his movie St. Joan based on the George Bernard Shaw play. And he finds her in Iowa. She's 17 years old. She done some acting, but she's never been in a movie before. It sounds like he was absolutely horrible to her. Yeah. He browbeat her, humiliated her. They they say that a psychologically he permanently damaged her, but b he literally there's literally a scene in the movie. I don't think I've ever seen this movie by the way, yeah. um, where they burned St. Joan at a stake. At the stake, well, he really put her on a stake surrounded by fire, and I've seen the clip. Burned the crap out of her. The fire got out of control. She's tied Whoa. to a stake. On top of a fire, a huge wave of flame hits her in the face. Here is what she says. And the movie is a total disaster, huge flop. And the critics uh, blame her, said she was terrible. This is her quote about it. She says, I have two memories of St. Joan. The first was being burnt at the stake in the picture. The second was being burnt at the stake by the critics. The latter (laughs) hurt more. I was scared like a rabbit and it showed on the screen. It was not a good experience at all. I started where most actresses end up. It sounds like she was just really damaged and really fragile. And then Otto Preminger said, let's make another movie together. And they made (laughs) Bonjour Trieste, another film I haven't seen. It's maybe slightly more successful. She still got panned. Godard and Truffaut loved her. They thought this is a really special person. And her career is nowhere at this point in late 1959. And they get her to come do the movie. She is the biggest star in the film, obviously, because she was in huge, huge. These are huge movies that she'd been in. She gets paid $15,000, which is one third of the total budget. Oh, yeah. This is what Godard said. He felt that she represented America. She represented both Monroe and an antidote for the 50s culture that worshipped Monroe. hmm Which I think is a very interesting, interesting way of saying this. Yeah. As soon as she got on the set, she felt she had made a mistake. because this is not what she signed up for. They're shooting this scene uh, on the street. And again, it's guerrilla style and they can't have a camera on a dolly. First of all, they couldn't afford a dolly. So, and also they don't have permits. So you can't like walk down the middle of the street with a big camera on a dolly uh, and get away with it. So what instead they did is they put the camera into a postal cart, covered it with packages. And so the DP is, is hiding inside a postal cart, which they're pulling along, backing away from the two actors that are talking. There's also, by the way, no-sync sound, so they're not recording sound. Wow. And they're improvising. Yeah. So sometimes there's a script supervisor who's trying to write down what they're saying, and sometimes there isn't. So when they get in post and now they have to dub in the audio, yeah. they don't actually know what they said. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> they did. Sometimes they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he, the first thing he's asking, he wants her to come with him to Rome. Let's get you my companion, Which, first of all, is that's his escape. He's got to get out of the country because he's killed a cop. Right. And this is, okay, this is what's weird about this film, is that Mm -hmm. the film is a dance between these two Mm -hmm. people. Yes. And each of them want things. Exactly what they want or how they feel is real tough to figure out because it's all this, it's not even, I would say, all subtext. It's all... Like weird little probing questions and statements trying to figure the other one out.
1: I think with her, and and, you know, the thing we have to remember is, you know, we're men of age, we have to remember what it's like to be in your 20s and don't know what you want. You're just kind of experiencing the world. What is she doing in Paris? Why was she in Nice where they met? Like, what is this all about? And uh, we find out later, obviously, their parents are sending her money that they wanted to sign up to to enroll at this university but she's clearly representing what a lot of people felt at the beginning of the 60s where where am i going what am yeah. i doing where, where where's my where am we going again this idea of what's the point what is going on and so throughout the whole film she is constantly asking questions constantly seeking advice constantly seeking some sort of direction throughout the film, and spending time with someone who is, has only one purpose, which is to get the hell out of Paris and into Rome, attracts her to, a, to an extent, but also repels her to an extent, because there are no answers to be found with him other than escaping into more of the unknown, escaping into more of the idea of, well, is this the right thing? Or an adventure to take your mind off the fact that you don't know what you want to do with your life. So she's a woman in, tra- a young woman in transition mentally about where she wants to go next. And this guy represents an escape uh, from that. You know, even though she keeps asking these questions of him, it's a place to hide out for a little while before she has to make this decision. And I think a lot of us who are creatives have had this experience. Lord knows I've had uh, relationships like this or dating situations like this in my t- late teens and twenties where you're just kind of with someone and you're kind of figuring it out and that person doesn't ask anything of you and you can escape with that person. And so you're just kind of, okay, I'll date this person for now and kind of figure out life as it comes to me or blah, blah, blah. So, Cause not everyone has it always figured out. And so I relate, a, I related a lot to what she's going through and what he, and what he represents to her. And you're right, Steve. I think it's a perfect description. It's a dance. And sometimes she leads, sometimes he leads, but she's more willing to walk away from the dance than he is. And I think that becomes more and more evident as the film goes along. And especially when she goes to the press conference and that guy says, French women don't dominate their men, American women dominate their men. This is a transition in watching how he, she is the one in power throughout the whole relationship, even though he appears to be in power throughout. Here's what occurred to me is
0: because one of the things that's fun about this kind of movie is we can interpret it in a whole bunch of different ways. And Mm -hmm, here's mm -hmm. one that's just kind of occurred to me is, is that he is interested in the what, in in other words, where are we going to go? Are we going to go to Rome? Are we going to have sex? Am I going to get this money? Am I going to get away from the cops? Right, she isn't right. in t- interested in the emotional side. How do you feel yes. about me? How do I feel about you?
1: Right. I'm exploring this.
0: Yeah. There's a quote from Goddard and I was trying to decide where I was going to say it. But Goddard said, breathless is about a boy and a girl who say the same words with different meanings.
1: Mm interesting
0: is that there's this weird sense in which they spend the <laughs> whole movie talking and they do very little communicating. Um, <laughs> That's a
1: great point, dude. Yeah.
0: Like I said, I highlighted some lines that seem to have significance and he's looking at the New York Herald Tribune and he hands it back to her and he says, take it back. There's no horoscope And first of all, we have the first of many times where she asked for what a French word means. So she asks right. what a horoscope is and he says, it's the future. I want to know the future. Don't you
1: right there again.
0: That we find out that they've obviously slept together before in the past, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. maybe not a lot. And he's trying to find out, well, wait, are you mad that I didn't say g- goodbye? And she says, no, I was furious because I was sad. Yeah. Which yeah. is an interesting. So because saying I'm mad that you left means I'm mad at you. Saying mm-hmm. I'm furious because I was sad is kind of I'm mad at me. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's not just like I said, it's not just do you love me? It's do I love you? And if he left and she was sad, well, then that meant that she has feelings for her. And that made her angry because she wants to be independent. And then he talks about how he slept with two girls since her, but they didn't jive at all. (laughs) Now, first of all, I don't think any movie has talked about sex in this way up to this point. Yeah,
1: the gigolo thing, all of it's very, uh, um, how can I say this? very upfront. It's very matter of fact not a big deal well and the level of comfort that they have
0: with each other and talking Mm -hmm. about these things is so i mean first of all it's very french you know (laughs) (laughs) americans were not talking in this way yeah Uh, but there's even this moment where he says why don't you wear a bra and then he kind of pokes her breast and again we've never seen this in an american film which i actually think there's something so much more real and particularly when we get to the scene in the room yeah. of just how people actually are around each other mm. sexually and in relationships that we never saw, this level of intimacy. Yeah. But she's continuing to say no, and then there's sort of a maybe, and he, he walks away from her, and we're in this high angle, and, and then she runs up to him and kisses him and then goes away. And the music is very, very dramatic.
1: She was ready to not do anything, but, like, because she's in this place of, like, she's on a whim a little bit, she runs back over and goes, okay, I'll see you later, blah blah blah, instead of tonight. And so, it's, and kisses him, which is what he was trying, you know, trying to feel like, is she still with me or not? Is she still interested in me or not? Is she still attracted to me or not? And she gives him the kiss as confirmation. But again, she is the one in control. She is the one that in these movements, and it's it's the illusion of the film because I've seen some people say that oh, he does all these things and she just kind of takes it. Bull fucking shit. She, he's doing stupid shit, but she slaps him multiple times. She tells him when he says, like, well, you're not wearing a bra. That's no – what kind of talk is that? So she is, she is very in command of her womanhood and forcing him to respect her. Uh, and she only gives in to him when she is ready to give in to him. So I think this is something that you see, this dance that Steve so eloquently pointed out throughout the the movie. And this is another one of those movements in the dance.
0: I think – and again, this is why this movie is so open to a lot of interpretations, but mm. I would probably put it slightly differently, which is that I think it's complicated. I think on the Facebook post about their relationship, it says, yeah. it's complicated. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like there are, are places where she certainly has power, but she like, like here's the thing. He always knows, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to go do that. And nothing would right. stop him from doing the thing that he wanted to do when he wanted to do it, where she is continually thinking through, do I want this? do i want that right and i think she's wrestling one right. of the things she's wrestling with is her independence versus her attraction to him yeah and so she has decided i am not going with you to rome i'm not sleeping with you again and then at the last minute she runs up and kisses him that is that finding that balance uh mm. as he walks away he walks past a sign that says live dangerously till the end <laughs> i mean you can't be more on the money about yeah. about michelle yeah. than that sign after he walks away from Patricia, um, we hear the screeching of tires and then we cut to a man dead on the street, a scooter knocked over nearby, and he has basically witnessed a guy killed in an accident. Right. What, what is the meaning of this? Why are we seeing this at this moment?
1: Again, the the fragility of life, that anything can happen at any moment. So live life this way. Like Remember, you saw the sign, life is short, live dangerously. Same thing here. It reaffirms his own mantra about- how life is short and he, he just, he's going to do whatever he wants to do while with the time he has, do you know what I'm saying? And and also the idea of having someone killed who was riding a scooter, which is related to the fact that he shot someone on who was a motorcycle cop. Like there's connections all around. I think my favorite moment of this whole fucking moment scene rather is the dude who walks up in the dark suit Kicks the guy in the shoulder to make to see if he's still alive. Like what the <laughs> fuck? It's such a it's such a random moment, but I think it's a, it, it could also be symbolic of, you know, how people perceive death. Things like oh yeah, all right, he's dead, moving on. Especially in a big city where people are just so focused on doing what they need to do and getting to where need, they need to go, and he doesn't stick around. He checks on the guy to make sure he's alive or dead. Michelle does, but then doesn't stick around, obviously, to give any kind of statement or anything like that. So. An interesting moment. I think it just kind of reaffirms for him the fragility of life. I would take it even a step for, further because mm. I hadn't
0: thought about the fact, but you're totally right, that this is a guy who was on a scooter who died like the cop that he killed. Yeah. The next moment is that he looks at the paper and sees an article about the cop he killed, and it says killer identified, police killer identified. Yes. Right, and the right. thing is, where is Michelle going to end up? He's going to be end up lying dead in the street. Is that I think it is putting all of those things together. With people standing over him. With people standing over him. Mm -hmm. I think the juxtaposition is really, really interesting there. Yeah. Well, this is the weird thing. is like, is the movie filmed in this totally random, you know, improvisational way? Yeah. Does it have all these things that you would think, symbolic things that you would think take a lot of time and planning and thought to put together? Yeah. And I yeah. don't know if some of them were our accidents and some of them are luck or some of them were, I don't know. And now we go into this lobby and this is all one really, really long shot. And it's really cool. And yeah. basically what's happening is he comes in, he asks for a guy, this guy that he's been looking for. And there he finds his friend. We're talking about the money. We The camera circles back as they walk together. And this is clearly some buddy also. Somewhat a criminal. We don't quite know. And he hands him this envelope and it opens up. And I don't quite understand exactly what has happened, mm. but I think he expected to find some money in this envelope and the money's not there.
1: That's what I think yeah. has happened. Yeah, I would agree with that. Absolutely.
0: And he tries to call Antonioni and he's not there, which is something we're going to see over and over and over again. <laughs> and the camera follows him out. As these two guys walk in, and then we have a cut. That is all one long shot. Yeah. And these guys that come in are cops. And they start talking to the guy and asks if they, he knows Michelle Picard, also goes by the name Laszlo Kovacs. <laughs> uh, and the guy who was literally talking to him 30 seconds ago says no. <laughs> and then they call over the woman who first spoke to Michelle and asks her. And she goes, yeah, he just left so the cops run out after him and we know okay so this is like the elements of a noir thriller with the yeah. bad guy on the run from the cops oh yeah and yet it doesn't if it, it it's referencing that but it feels entirely different
1: right if this is american this would be like in a seedy bar and this guy would be right. roughed up a little bit as he's trying to get the answers but the guy is so relaxed he's leaning on the counter he's playing with the propeller so and it's the and it's daytime. I mean, the entire, mm. f- almost the entire film takes place in the daytime. This doesn't f- have that same kind of menace. Plus, that French inspector is kind of a goof, uh, and he's not. He doesn't feel yeah. like a guy who could actually track this guy down. Later, when he asks Patricia in the newspaper, he's, he almost has to prep himself to ask her the questions, like get himself like psyched up to ask the questions. So he's a he's a weird guy in so many ways. And he's disheveled, and his suit doesn't fit right. You know, just. Feels like that guy. So in essence, they're kind of making fun a little bit of the cops too.
0: I totally agree. But you know, the other thing that his kind of rough, wrinkled suit made me think of hmm. is Orson Welles in Touch of Evil. Oh yeah, you know, which I yeah. which is you know I'm sure a reference. Put Touch of Evil's got to be a huge reference point for these people. And there yeah. are other shots later on that remind me of Touch of Evil too. And we have these cool shots where Michelle, we see the cops in the reflection in a window and yeah. to show how close they are. And he walks up to a display of Humphrey Bogart and pictures right. of Bogart and right. him looking at Bogart and smoking and taking off his sunglasses and wiping his lips is just <laughs> this fascinating coming together of American film and the French New Wave.
1: Let me ask you a question, please. The Laszlo Kovacs thing is so fascinating, isn't it? Because Laszlo Kovacs be- is a name that is attached to two separate people that I've known. Mm. First of all, Laszlo Kovacs is a cinematographer, mm, but he right, didn't right. gain prominence until the late 6 or mid 60s onward. And then Laszlo Kovacs is also a Hungarian politician who was born in 1939, but didn't really come into prominence as the leader of the kind of the workers movement in Hungary until the late, oh, the mid to late sixties. So how do they pick a name like Laszlo Kovacs out of thin air? I would love to know. They didn't. Yeah. So, oh, so okay. the
0: answer is they didn't.
1: It's because he
0: is a cinematographer that was part of the French new wave. He's Hungarian oh. and uh, Godard knew him. Son and a bitch. whole bunch of these, Okay. A whole bunch of the names are Goddard's friends. And there's a whole okay. bunch of inside jokes like Beirut and Antonio and all all these names are like, these are people right. that Goddard knew. including Laszlo
1: Wow. Yeah. Okay.
0: All right. What I thought you were going to ask, uh, which yes. comes up sort of later, is who the fuck is Michelle? Is he Laszlo Kovacs? Is he oh, who he yes. says he is? Like, I don't think we ever actually, and he says some things about his past, but I don't think we ever really know if we can believe any of that.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And he walks away from the Bogart display, and in the reflection of that display, as he walks away, we see the cops. Yeah. And then we iris out, so, like, makes that circle that goes to black. And then in the black, we hear, I saw a man die. And she asks, how did he die? In an Mm -hmm. accident. She asks him to take her out to dinner and he looks at his hands and we see basically he only has a few coins and he goes, I'll be back in one second. And she says, right. The French always say one second when they mean five minutes, <laughs> he leaves and she's leaning on a car. She's in that striped shirt in, with the sunglasses and the hat. And mm-hmm. she just is stunning. Yeah. Very beautiful. Gene Seberg. And her face is so fascinating that you could just kind of look mm-hmm. at it forever, you know, and certainly mm-hmm. the camera does. He goes into some restaurant or something, goes down some circular stairs into the bathroom, washing his hand in the sunglasses, looking super cool. And a guy comes in, he steps aside, washes his hand, and he knocks that guy out and drags him away, walks out with some money. Right. Again, we're walking towards camera. The camera is fairly low. And then he tells this story. And I think this story is key to the whole movie. He mm. says, I just read something about a bus conductor who stole $5 million to seduce a girl posing as a rich guy. He took her to the Riviera and they blew the wad in three days, which, by the way, <laughs> that's a that's a lot of I don't know how what the exchange rate for Franks are. Seems like a lot, probably a lot of money. Um, <laughs> and but then he says the guy told her it was stolen money and that he was a hood. And what's great is that she stuck by him and said that she liked him and so they went to paris and they were nabbed trying to rob some fancy villas what do you think the meaning of this
1: story is well i think he's trying to convince her to go with him yeah and i also think it's his very emotionally stunted way of saying that he has feelings for her that he does love her and it's also a romantic story like a big romantic story in terms of the gesture so i think he's trying to kind of put that idea in her mind, you know, I'm the kind of person that could do that. This is, you see, we can be criminals and be in love and, you know, live our life. We can be Bonnie and Clyde internationally, you know?
0: Well, first of all, one of the most important movies influenced by breathless and the French new wave is Bonnie and Clyde. That makes sense. There is no Bonnie and Clyde without breathless. True. I think it's what you said. And I, and I I think it's also, it's a weird confession because I also think he's saying Mm. I am a criminal and I want you to accept that and be, come with me. You know, yeah. what we hear is that she has an appointment because she is becoming a journalist in some way and she's got to go mm-hmm. meet someone. And he says he'll give her a lift to this appointment. They're in the in the car. And the first thing she asks is, what happened to the Ford? <laughs> well, of course, the answer is all these cars are stolen. He doesn't own yes. a car. Um,
1: now, here's a question for you, Steve. Yeah, Do you think... She knows that he's stealing these cars and doing all the things that she's doing, he's doing, but doesn't want to call him out on it yet because she's still kind of figuring out whether she has feelings for this guy or not.
0: Yes, I do. I okay. think I, do, I think she doesn't know the degree to which mm. he's a criminal, but I think she knows he's a criminal. Yes. Okay. And he says, let me stay with you. She says, I've got a headache, classic. And she <laughs> says, we won't have sex. I just want to be with you. Also
1: Classic. Yeah.
0: And as they're talking, there are these jump cuts that are still happening. And there's this weird effect that I think they have, which is it makes the time, the way time passes in real ordinary time. Like in a movie, you're seeing the highlights, right? You're only seeing a thing that's important. And so time is compressed to show you everything is dramatic and important. Whereas Mm -hmm. in life, you're driving in the car and sometimes you're just sitting and you're and time is passing and there isn't a dramatic and importantness. It's just, (laughs) oh, then an interesting thing's got said. You know what I mean? That's how it feels to me. Woe is me. Woe is me. I love a girl with a pretty neck, pretty breasts, a pretty voice, pretty wrists, a pretty forehead, and pretty knees.
1: But she's such a coward. Do you think she's a coward? No, not at all. He's trying, again, the whole movie Is him trying to use every male, every straight male tactic possible to get her to go with him, to get her to say yes. This is he's trying to seduce her. So every tactic he's rolling him out. So now attacking her character as a person, he's essentially saying you're a coward because you don't want to go with me to Rome and you don't want to indulge in this fantasy that I've created of us. He's trying desperately to get a reaction from her. But, you know, she brushes that shit off. It doesn't affect her in the same way.
0: Well, and I think it's also connected to the story told, which is that the woman who went with the guy with the 5 million francs to the Riviera and stuck with him and committed crime, she was not a coward.
1: The woman who will not sleep with
0: him and go to Rome, that woman is a coward. Right. Right. And then one more thing that's important, as she leaves, he gets angry. He says, get lost. I never want to see you again. Get lost. You make me want to puke. Yes. Which is- a real important line for the end of this film (laughs) yeah amazing shot of her going into this building going up this escalator just looks super cool for a movie that had no budget and had no lights this movie looks amazing then she has this meeting with this guy partially in english and we'll go into the whole thing it's Uh clear that she works with him there's this book that he wants her to read and he said he says it's about this woman who doesn't want to want a child the operation is unsuccessful and she dies it's a shame if that happens to you one of the things that's going to come up later in the movie is that she says she's pregnant yes does he know that she's pregnant is she thinking about an abortion is this why this is in the film
1: this guy the guy who she's meeting i yeah i'd be surprised if he knew i would be
0: too but this Mm. story seems very pointed and the other thing that's going on in this scene that's interesting is it relates to the woman who said she stopped working in the film industry because you had to sleep around. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this, this guy is clearly flirting with her and connecting it to their working together in ways that are... Both subtle and not at all subtle, if that that makes sense. Absolutely. Like he tells this whole story about this thing where he forgot to tell a girl that he wanted to sleep with her. It's very strange. And then they head off together. And I don't think we know if there's an intent, if his intention is to take her to sleep with him. I don't know if we know. What do you think?
1: Oh, the guy? Yes. I think because he's putting his arm around her. And and remember earlier in the film when Michelle tries to put his arm around her twice – she takes his hand off of her shoulder. But with this yeah. guy, she lets it happen. And then we see them later in the car making out and Michelle has been stalking them and Michelle sees them. And so I think what she's doing here, once again, she's just kind of exploring where she wants to go next. So if this guy wants to make out with her, okay. If it leads to more articles or whatever or more experience for her, okay. But she also says later on in the film, she's not a person that, that will sleep around. And when, when we get to the model, she's like, I never want to be a model because right. you have to sleep around. I don't want to sleep around. So clearly, again, she's giving a little bit of herself, but she the, there's a means to an end here that she feels she's in control of. You know what's interesting to me
0: is we've recently, in the last five years, gotten to a place where there was a whole element of the world that women live in mm-hmm. that has come out. Yes. That yeah. we knew about, but in the Me Too movement, we heard how much more pervasive what these things are and how often women are dealing with it. Mm -hmm. This movie might be the first where it shows that. Do you know what I mean? Mm, Right. Men constantly after these women and women, and she has to constantly decide how will she handle it? How will she handle it? How will she handle it? And as you say, uh, Michelle is watching them and not (laughs) all that pleased about it. She gets to her place and there is no key for where her key is not there behind the desk. She goes up to her room. This sequence is almost a third of the film. Mm -hmm. It's huge in this scene in her rooms. They shot there because this is where Godard stayed when he came back to France from South America in the early 50s. Oh, wow. So he wanted to shoot in this place. Okay. It is a really cramped space. Normally in filmmaking, you avoid shooting in really cramped spaces (laughs) because it's really hard. The crew is like three people because that's all they can fit in the room. They have no lights. The script supervisor, when she was allowed on set, was just looking through the crack in the door to watch the scene. Sometimes Godard would just send her away because he didn't like the script supervisor. And really, if you're making a movie, the script supervisor is always the person that bugs you. Oh, they picked that up with their left hand and it should have been their right hand, or they didn't say this line quite right, or this doesn't match. Goddard wanted freedom. He didn't want to be perfect. He wanted to be able to do whatever he wanted to do. Right. It's mostly improvised. And this is, this is, how, this is how a day of shooting worked on Breathless. They had no script. Every day, Goddard would show up at like nine in the morning invite the actors out to coffee, they'd sit at a cafe, and he would read to them the lines he had come up with for the day. He would read them to them first. Then he'd hand them to the actors, and then the actors would make those lines their own, and they would read through it again and kind of come up with new ways of saying things. And then they'd get on the set, and then they would sort of improvise their way through the scenes, and he would also yell new lines to
1: them as they shot. This is exactly how David Milch did stuff on the last two seasons of mm. of, of um, Deadwood. He The actors would show up on the set. Wow. He would lie on the ground with his assistant and come up with the scenes and come up with the dialogue as he's just kind of laying on the ground, coming up with it. And the assistant is furiously writing down everything. Then translating that into typed pages and handing those out to the actors on the day of. And the wow. actors are looking over that and trying to memorize it quickly and bring their life to the characters and connect it to their overall story before they got on set. And some actors loved it. Other actors absolutely hated it and were going crazy uh, about doing it this way. Milch is a genius, and sadly, I think he has now dementia, but he had such an incredible knowledge. And I think one of the reasons that Deadwood works so well is that it feels both improvised and scripted, um at the same time which is a rarity in a show. It is so it's so funny because it is exactly you know
0: the same thing. I would say don't do it that way. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad way to do it, but you can't argue with success, you know. <laughs> right. Um the other thing he said is he told the actors be yourself. Don't try to be what I need you to be. Just be. I'm just someone watching. Um you got to by the way give huge credit to the cinematographer, Raoul Coutard. Mm-hmm. I, this is not easy. And this is a guy who, you know, is a documentary guy. He shot film in Vietnam when it was, you know, the French war in Vietnam. Mm. And when people are improvising, the cameraman has to be so loose because they got to, we got to be pulling focus and following with the actress. It's really, really hard in this tiny little space. Mm. It's amazing. Mais
1: qu'est-ce que vous faites
0: là? I think there is more honesty of what a couple are like together alone. In this scene, than almost in any other film I can think of.
1: Yeah, these are this is the Sunday morning conversation. We are just lying in bed. You don't have anywhere yeah. to go, and you're just having playful conversations with the with the woman or the man that you have feelings for, uh, and you go back and forth, and you have these questions and thoughts and comments. And I think it's great, and I love it, and I enjoy the hell out of it watching this sequel. This is one of the things that when, people, when people ask me, like, why do, I enjoy, why do I enjoy this film? It's a lot of talking. There's so much going on in the talking that if you're not paying attention to it, you can just think it's frivolous back and forth between these, this couple. But there's so much happening that is character work about who this Michelle guy is and who Patricia is throughout this time in the apartment. They are so trying to figure each other
0: out. Mm -hmm. I think in a weird way, they totally know each other and they have no idea who the other one is. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's perfect, actually. And there's this moment where he says, don't make such a face. And then they make faces, which is just one of those fun, cute things that people do. (laughs) Um, I don't know how to pick apart this scene or figure out what lines are important or what
1: lines are not you know, I hear your point, but I think the only thing to say is this is this is once again another another dance, a new song, and it is him and her trying to get what they want out of the scene. Right. She wants to get answers to the questions and we she wants to figure out how she feels about him. She is not going to give herself uh, up to him easily because um, he's the kind of guy that won't respect that. And he's trying every tactic imaginable uh, and bulldozing through her questions, through her comments, through her thoughts. He tries to, you know, pick up her dress and she slaps him. Um, So this is just a dance of these two people. One is trying to figure out where she wants to go with her affections and her life, really. And one is trying to convince the other one to go with him and go off into um rome and this is a microcosm of this whole issue or whole situation between the both of them and i think the important stuff is subjective what do you think is important versus what someone else watching might think is important the whole overall point of this is that this is the slow seduction which ends up with them eventually making love and him spending the night. And we wake up the next morning yeah. and she says, I, uh, well, that's that.
0: I agree with all that. I think, I think there are like some key moments. Like one, okay. he says, she asked why he's here. Sure. And he says, because I want to sleep with you again. And she says, that's hardly a reason. And he says, sure it is. It means yeah. I love you.
1: Do you think he thinks that's true? No, of course not. I don't think so either. I think he's, he, he's, again, he's just using yeah. the tactics. He's a man. He's like, oh, if I tell her I love her, then she'll sleep with me.
0: And she says, but I don't know if I love you. And then there's this moment later where she says, because I'm trying to find out what it is I like about you. I And then she says, I want us to be Romeo and Juliet. Right. Which is weird to me because both of them die. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. She says Romeo couldn't live without Juliet. Right. Do you think Michelle can live without Patricia?
1: I think he can try. I mean, I think he has. But yes, I think he can live without
0: her. I think not only do I think he can live without her. I think at this moment, he is fascinated by her. Yeah. But I think if what happens didn't happen and she didn't stay with him, there would be another woman he would be fascinated with six months from now. Yeah. That's what I think. Then there's this moment where he says, give me a smile. And she Mm -hmm. refuses. And he says, I'll count to eight. If by eight you haven't smiled, I'll strangle you. Mm. And he puts his hands on her throat. Yeah. And he counts.
1: Two, three, four, five, six, seven. This is
0: such a weird, intimate. Mm. You know what it reminds me of, John? Is a scene that I know you love, Mm -hmm. which is the Mm. scene in. Uh, What the fuck's the movie called? Uh, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson with Adam Sandler that we did. Punch Drunk Love. Oh, Punch Drunk Love. Yes. The scene with them in bed where they're saying horrible that they want to, you know, beat each other up, essentially.
1: Want to take a hammer to your face. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's what this reminds me of. It is so weird. And so, and it's not like I really think he's going to strangle her, but like there's this, we're in this really weird place. And the end, she doesn't smile. And he goes seven and a half, seven and three quarters. And then he says, You're such a coward. You're going to smile. And she does. Yeah. The mix of coward with her not being willing to smile, that's like you're a coward because you're not loving me, because you're not going mm-hmm. with me to Rome. Because you're not smile. You're not embracing the emotional side, the passion. You know what I mean? Right. That's why. And then she
1: does smile, of course. Right. But only on her terms. And they go past the A count. Again. Yeah. It is absolutely. always on her terms you know, and she, she feels no, she's not threatened by him at all. He puts his right. arm, his hands around. she knows. No, I don't like, think she's, she's scared of him. very strangling yeah. her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
0: This movie obviously is referencing lots of movies. We talked about touch of evil. We talk mm. about Bogart. There's one point where he says, why do I always fall for girls that aren't my type or something? That's a Dashiell Hammett line. Mm. And then there's this moment. Do you ever think about death? I do all the time. That's totally referencing Ingmar Bergman now, mm. you know, Uh, who is obviously obsessed with death. And then she goes to put up a poster and is trying to find where the poster fits. Mm. And this is the moment at which he kind of pulls up her dress and she slaps at him. He says, I want to sleep with you again because you're beautiful. I'm not then because you're ugly. (laughs) Uh, He calls her kid, which just makes me think of here's looking at you kid. Right. Right. And he says this interesting thing about telling the truth. He says, it's like power, better to tell the truth. than others think that you're bluffing and that's how you win.
1: He says like poker.
0: Totally. He, well, it is because like, how about the line? I'll stare at you until you stop staring at me. Right. All that's all this stuff. Yep. And then she rolls up that poster and she looks through it. And the music changes from his theme to her theme at this moment. Mm-hmm. And the camera pushes in, zooms in through the poster to his face. The shot is remarkable. Yeah. yeah. Incredible. Apparently, this is a ripoff of a sequence from a 1940 Western f- where the, the shot was framed through the barrel of a gun. Wow. Well, this is this weird love of like genre films yeah. that they're yeah. turning into art films. That's
1: a good point. Yeah.
0: And then we cut to them kissing. And she says, I'll hang my poster in the bathroom. I think the poster, her trying to find the poster is her trying to find a place for her, him in her life. Oh, that's Do good. You symbolism fit into my life?
1: Yeah, that's um, actually a really good symbolism. We're in the bathroom.
0: This is as intimate a location as you can have. And he's like, has this weird mitten that he's rubbing his face with. And she's cleaning yeah. her feet in the bidet. I mean, you can't get more intimate. This is another, this has never been seen in a film, you know?
1: Right, 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 right,
0: And in this incredibly intimate moment, she says, I'm pregnant. Right. Is she pregnant?
1: Uh, I don't know. And she says she doesn't know. And she says she's went, she's gone in and gotten the test. I won't She know. hasn't
0: gotten the test yet. She's She's gone in, but she has to go back for the test
1: on Thursday. Oh, okay. I thought she was going back for the results. Okay, so she's going back for yeah. the test. Oh, it could
0: this, be that. Yeah. And his response is, you should have been more careful. Right. That's his way of getting out of the
1: responsibility of it all. Yeah. You know, And she says later on, I get, I think like I told maybe I told you that to see how you'd respond to it, you know? So again, she's still figuring out whether this guy is supposed to, is the right guy for her.
0: Well, it's weird that what she's, she's having to figure out both how he feels about her, but, and mm-hmm. how she feels about him. Like normally we're only trying to figure out one of those two things. You yeah. know what I mean? True. She's True. trying to figure out both of them. Um, there's this really interesting moment. He goes back. He's again, making these phone calls about, you know, whether (laughs) about getting his money and she's looking at herself in the mirror and she holds up her fingers and starts counting. Yeah. My impression of what she's counting is the days since her last period. Yes. That's what I think so too. And then she covers her face when she comes up with the number.
1: Or the days since she was supposed to have her period and she hasn't. Right. That's so how many yeah. days she's late. Exactly. Be, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
0: I think as uh, like everything else, we don't know, but I think she might be pregnant. I don't think she mm-hmm. knows for sure. I think she's right. in that gray area. She's late. Yeah. Maybe it's nothing, but it could be something. Right. There's this moment, I think, that you mentioned before. He says, you Americans are so dumb. You adore Lafayette and Maurice Chevalier,
1: and they are the dumbest French. Well, you know, Godard said something like this in an interview about America. he said, Americans are terrible with their analysis, but they mm. create an incredible attitude in film. And he said, the French have to create their own attitude in film, um, which implies that they have intelligent analysts, analytical people in France. Uh, Yet somehow Americans, who he sees as lower than uh, French in terms of their ability to analyze uh, art, were able to create their own voice within that medium. And he's frustrated the French don't. This is before he made Breathless. Mm. That is
0: very interesting. I wonder what he would think of our analysis. (laughs) Americans I don't care fuck him (laughs) you know what that's probably what he would say about our analysis
1: exactly so
0: Um, they do the thing that you really shouldn't do of comparing how many people they slept with (laughs) she talks about how she'd want to live in Mexico and what I think she's doing is she's putting forth like she put forth Romeo and Juliet and now she's putting forth this romantic notion of going to Mexico And he totally shoots it down. Mexico doesn't grab me. I don't think it's that great. And then he shoots down this fantasy of Swedish girls in Stockholm. And like, they're not so great either. Like, what's funny is he says that he wants to sleep with her because he slept with a couple of girls since her and they didn't jive. So his reasoning is avoiding a negative. And Mexico's not that great. And Stockholm girls aren't that great. He's he's It's like he's bringing down the world to elevate her.
1: Yeah. As opposed
0: to elevating her. You know what I mean? Yeah, And she's looking for some kind of romantic something. She leans in very close. Her eyes are closed. It's very intimate. He runs his hand down her arm to her knee and asks,
1: <laughs>
0: Would you let another guy caress you? Mm-hmm. And she, of course, she doesn't respond because they're not talking to each other. That's right. what's so weird about the scene is they never quite connect, I think. Mm-hmm. She says, you said I'm scared. It's true. I'm scared. Because I want you to love me. But at the same time, I want you to stop loving me. Mm -hmm. There you go, man. Mm -hmm. The line, I want to know what's behind your face. Yeah. I think we could do a whole, we could talk two hours about that. I think that's all all (laughs) humans want to do, period. Yeah. In relation, I want to know what's behind your face. Mm -hmm. What is really going on? And the fact is, even in the closest and most intimate relationships, even in people that have been married for 50 years, you still don't ever actually get to know. Mm. That's my
1: feeling. Mm. And he wipes his lips. That's where she sees it for the first time. Mm. Right in that moment.
0: And he does this thing that he did before. Before he said she was beautiful. He wants to sleep with her because she's beautiful. And then I want to sleep with you because you're ugly. And then he says, sweet, gentle Patricia. She says, no. And he says, then mean, stupid, heartless, pathetic, cowardly, despicable. Mm. And she smiles. (laughs) And she brings up William Faulkner. He doesn't know who that is. And she talks about the last line of one of his books, which is between grief and nothing. I will take grief. And she asks, which would you choose? He says, grief is stupid. I'd choose nothing. And you know what? That's exactly what they're going to get. He's going to mm-hmm. get nothing because he's going to die.
1: Right.
0: And she's going to get grief. Oh, uh, yeah. Good point. There's an amazing shot where she's her hands are sort of clenched. She's got his hat on, her cigarette's in her, her right hand, and she closes her eyes and she says, I'm shutting them tight so everything goes black. But I can't do it. It's never entirely black. Mm. You know what's entirely black is his death at the end. Mm. And then they get under the sheets together. Right. And we hear a news report saying we interrupt this programming, but we don't actually hear what it is. But it makes me think about the killer that's on the loose. Mm -hmm. And then we also hear something about Franco-American rapprochement, which is what's happening under the sheets because (laughs) the sheets start moving and there's radio music playing and there's more movement. And then an arm reaches out from under the sheets and turns off the knob of the radio. And I think we can know what's going on below those sheets.
1: And this is all on her terms. Again, again, I'm going to keep stressing this over and over again. They didn't go to bed until she was ready to go to bed with him. They didn't have sex until she was ready to have sex with him. He was, you know, the the two moments where he threatens, he calls her names, she just smiles because she knows he's just, he's desperate to have sex with her. And these are one of the tactics and she sees right through it, you know? And so she's always in control. And right after this sex scene, it's the next morning, or some time afterwards, and she pops out of the bed, and she just says, well, that's that. Voila. Which is great.
0: I think you're right, and she is totally in control of whether or not they have sex. What she's not in control of, in my opinion, is her own emotions. Is that, No, I, of
1: course, yeah. Yeah, I think she's-
0: She is, she was trying to construct a way in which it was okay to have sex with her, with him, in that they were going to be romantic, that it was going to be love. And I don't Mm. think she ever quite gets there. Right. But then she does decide to. she, maybe she convinces herself that that's possible, Mm, Maybe. but then she doesn't quite, it's not really there, you know? Um And she has to go to some press conference And she has to buy a dress And he's going to drop her off They kiss again And his eyes are open as they kiss And he touches her hair And that sequence is 25 minutes long Wow Which I should say That is ridiculously long For one <laughs> sequence in an hour and a half film It is but um, Well, and, and I struggled my way through it Because like, well, which lines are important? What yeah. moments are important? I, I don't know Yeah well, isn't my dinner with Andre
1: just Wallace, Sean, and that other guy sitting at the table for two hours? Do you know that I've never seen my dinner with him?
0: <laughs> what? Steve. I know. What? That's it's insane. totally my understanding. It's my kind of movie. Yeah, I was just going to say that. <laughs> it's just, it's one of those cracks, you know, that we all have of, you know, one of those holes in our, our repertoire. He goes off to steal a car and... There's a weird moment, by the way, as he's looking from car to car and he looks into this really fancy car and a guy comes out and looks at him looking in the car. And I can't tell if that's an actor and this was a car that they set up or if they just said, look in cars and a guy actually came out and saw him looking in his fancy car.
1: I feel like it's the second option because they cut. As soon as he notices it, he starts walking towards him, they cut. And that tells me this yeah. guy, they actually had an interaction with this guy.
0: He sees a Thunderbird, which by the way, so my dad never bought himself a new car his entire life. He always had used cars, and usually they're like hand-me-down cars from like he had his when his mom died, he had his mom's car. That's a mm. car we grew up with. Uh when his when his dad died, he had his dad's old car. Mm. Like my dad just never spent money on himself in that way. But the one dream car for his life yeah. was a 1957 Thunderbird. Ooh. And my dad bought the 1957 thunderbird when i was in high school that was the only time like i don't know if that was his midlife crisis or whatever but that was the moment that he actually spent money on himself wow and we had that car for decades until a few we got rid of it after he died Mm -hmm. and i took it to my senior ball it was the coolest fucking car (laughs) it was ridiculously powerful you didn't want to turn, right. it would, but it would, and it, you know, it was a two seater convertible with a hard top that you pulled off. It was, it was amazing.
1: I'm, I'm thinking of the song uh, from Mark Cohn on his debut album, you know, he did walking in Memphis, but mm-hmm. there's a song on his debut album called Silver Thunderbird. And it's about mm-hmm. his father's obsession with this Thunderbird car. And he, there's a line there where he says, um, don't you give me no Buick foreign cars are absurd. I just want to go down with my silver thunderbird. Yeah. And so I wonder if this is a decision by Goddard to choose a full-on American car to be the one that he steals to put her in and what and this is a this is a white car too Steve so is this a symbol symbolism of a white horse the night, the mm. white night, this idea of a knight on a white horse, like coming to save the maiden. Is this part of the romanticism kind of bubbling underneath the surface in kind of subtle ways throughout? And they, we just had the Romeo and Juliet conversation just a few minutes ago. So I don't know, I might be seeing too much into it, but there's possibilities. I think
0: there's it's definitely important that this is this American car at mm. this moment, mm. uh, it, whether or not it's all the symbolism you just said. I don't mm. know. But the connection to America and, you know, yeah. American style and American, you know, stuff is really important in this film. Yeah. And important, you know, France in post-World War II was obsessed with America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, very different from our relationship with Europe today. <laughs> so he sees the guy come who comes out of the T-bird. He follows him into this place. They go up in this elevator. The shot in the elevator is incredible. It's mm-hmm. one of those, you know, cage elevators where you can see through it and they go in and out of the dark. Nothing like this had ever been seen on film before because film stock was too slow to photograph this level of low light. You needed a lot more light to photograph things. Here's how they did it. This was not shot with motion picture film. Mm. Still photography films was faster than motion picture film at this time. And so they used actual still photography film. That was specially treated in development in some way, which I don't know what it was, that allowed them to get up to 400 ASA, which is wow. much faster than what, you know, films, regular film stock was. The problem was is that film stock has different sprockets on the side. Yeah. And that f- motion picture cameras can pull the sprockets through uh, the camera. Right. And regular still photography film has sprockets in different places. So mm-hmm. you can't use it in a motion picture camera, except for this one camera that I don't remember what it is. But instead of putting little, you know, pegs that go through the sprocket holes, it actually just grabs the edge of the film and pulls it through. Hmm. And so you could use film where the sprocket holes didn't match, which is why they could use this faster speed film, which pretty much allowed them to do everything they did they did. Like all the shots in that hotel room with no lights, you couldn't have done without this faster film. You huh. needed lights. Right. But the only camera that could do this was super loud, right. which is part of the reason they don't have sync sound because the camera was so loud. Okay. So like just the choice to use this film allowed them to shoot all these things that they couldn't have shot before, but also necessitated these other choices that they had to make in terms of not having sound.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And it's also why this film looks like nothing that had ever been shot up to this point. Right. That makes sense. So he goes up in the elevator, says he's on the wrong phone, goes down. Steals the T-Bird. Do you think he waited
1: like he wanted to see how far up he was? Yes. So that he could have enough time, like how much time he'd have to get the to boost the car? Yes. <laughs> All of that. That is
0: exactly what I think he did. <laughs> he gets a paper which says police killer at large, and there is his picture. So mm-hmm. now his picture is in the paper. What's so crazy to me is he doesn't... Behave like you would think a person He feels seems like he feels so Invulnerable right like I wouldn't Be walking around the streets of Paris With my picture on every
1: paper That's what cool
0: people do though well I am not a cool person I think we've established <laughs> this In years
1: Yes um, I also don't think you'd shoot a cop and whatever So it's just like I also like, Once again I also think this is part of his fatalism he, he is Tempting fate all the time Throughout this whole movie and What a better way to tempt yeah. fate than sticking around for another woman to, or sticking around for a woman to decide if she wants to be with you when the cops are coming after you, you know? Well, and again,
0: it's just, he does what he wants. He's just, this is, I'm just going to do this. Mm -hmm. We are at this press conference. The novelist, the quote unquote novelist, is actually another French new wave guy who's slightly older, like kind of the previous generation. His name's Jean-Pierre Melville. He was a a writer and I think a director. Yes, he was a director. Yes. And his voice and his style. The scene is so bizarre. I don't, it's like why we're having this long press conference at the movie, but he's fascinating to watch. And I think in a movie that invites you to explore symbolism and double meaning, every single line in this press conference can be applied. Mm-hmm. Someone asks, which is more moral, an unfaithful woman or a man who walks out? His response, an unfaithful woman. <laughs> It's a weird press conference. And maybe, you know, this is France instead of the U.S. No Americans would be asking these kinds of questions. Right. And the fact that he just is laying down the truth in a sort of from on high way yeah. is fascinating. Yeah. Someone asks, is there a difference between eroticism and love? He thinks about it and says, no, not really. I don't think so because eroticism is a form of love and vice versa. Hmm. How do you think that relates to the long scene we just had in the hotel? Yeah,
1: very clearly connective tissue there in terms of eroticism and love for sure i mean they're back and forth yeah has that kind of feeling to it yeah
0: well and i would say another thing too is that when you're deep in eroticism it feels like love yeah i mean they're intertwined and i don't think we can easily separate them yeah agree finally she gets her question in do women have a role to play in modern society and his response is if they're charming and wear striped dresses and dark sunglasses, <laughs> which is, of course, what she's wearing. Yeah, it's a great non-answer. Well, to me, it's almost like that actually proves that they don't. Mm. And this might be coming from a very modern perspective, but you just entirely objectified her and said you are only would have a place in modern society if you look the way I want you to look. Mm. If you don't look that way, then you have no place. <laughs> he says there are two things mattering in life for men. It's women. And for women, it's money. Hmm. Here's my question about this whole sequence where yeah. he says all these things. Are we supposed to feel like he's laying down truth, deep truth, or are we supposed to feel like he thinks he's laying down deep truth, but actually all of these statements
1: are flawed? Um, I think he's a clown and I don't put any attention onto what he, I think this is a moment to show the, um, how can I say this a moment to show the self-love that these intellectuals supposedly have about their opinions. So I think it's to make fun of him until the last question, when she asks him, what is his goals? And he says to be immortal and then to die. And that really stops her. And I think there are people who are young, who want to, who want that. I want to be immortal and then I want to die, right? James Dean, uh, Kurt Cobain, not that they wanted to die, but I'm saying they became immortal and then died. And it added to their immortality because they died. And by that, I mean, they'll they'll last forever. They'll, we'll always talk about James Dean or Kurt Cobain or any of the Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, what have you, you know?
0: I have three thoughts, and I will say yeah. the last one first, the first one second, and the second one third. No, I just made that up Sure Um, <laughs> um The first thought is, is that The people Is that those people That you just described mm-hmm. Who died young Other people go I want to be like that And be immortal And then die It's mm-hmm. not that James Dean Was thinking I want to be immortal And then die I don't know it's, I don't well, know what Yeah, James of course I, yeah. yeah, I don't know What he was thinking yeah. But put, we romanticize that notion That's the first thing yes, The second true. thing Is that That's what happens Michelle is essentially yeah. That person Yep He's going to be immortal, and particularly because of this movie, he is immortal and then dies. And the third thing is, is I think there's a contrast between how we in the audience might interpret this guy saying this stuff, Mm -hmm. which is a wide range. Some some people might be listening going, yeah, that's exactly it. And some people might be criticizing or thinking that he's a clown or bloviating or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between that and how is Patricia taking in all of these things that he's saying. Yeah, good point i think she might be believing him more than maybe i am Mm. you know Mm -hmm. from where she is because things he's saying about dominating and what do women want and eroticism it's literally talking about her relationship right now we dissolve to him driving to the t-bird and he pulls into what like looks kind of almost like a junkyard and there's a dog there and he is there it looks like to fence the car <laughs> and but the people there they were expecting an Oldsmobile which he says it fell through mm-hmm. now they know he stole the car right right of course the chop shop the he says he'll give him 800,000 francs for it but he can't pay him till next week and the reason he can't pay him till next week is the guy's got the newspaper where his picture is in as the murderer of a cop mm-hmm. And what I like is he says, it's basically like, look, if you're still alive or still free, I will pay you for the car. <laughs> but I'm not going to pay you now while you're being chased by the cops. Right. He asks to use the phone and goes in and again, calls for Antonio. And while they're doing that, this guy pulls the distributor caps off the car. He comes out, asks for a loan of 10,000 francs. No, 5,000 francs. No. And then realizes they pulled the distributor cap and punches the guy. Yeah. Just to get cab fare out of there.
1: Kicks the crap out of the guy, yeah.
0: They're in a cab. (laughs) Michelle is the worst customer in the cab. He is horrible. Yeah. Insulting him, trying to get him to go faster, giving directions, yelling at him, criticizing him. As they're driving, and he continues to insult the driver, he asks her about riding. And she says... She's writing so she can have money and not rely on men. Hmm. Now that's right after the scene where the novelist said that women are interested in money. Yeah. Then they tell the car to wait, both get out of the car Yeah. and they go into this totally dark space and they are, they're just skipping out on the cab without paying. Correct.
1: (laughs) Yes. Cause she even says it. Why aren't you paying? Yeah.
0: But she doesn't really object. Right. And then they come out of the dark into the light. Again, the shot is beautiful. They say goodbye, and she goes into the office of the Herald Tribune Mm. where she is doing some work, and the cops are there, and they immediately go to speak to her, and they show the picture in the paper of Michelle, and the first thing she says is she doesn't recognize him. Yeah. And then they put the pressure on him, on her. They say, careful, kid. You can't fool the Paris police. And then she does recognize him. Right. But says, oh, it was an old photo. So did she recognize him when she first saw the picture? Of course she did. Yeah. Of course she did. Absolutely. And then she gives some information. He's got a, a Ford T-Bird. She gives the license number. She doesn't know where she is. She's seen him five or six times. She thought he was nice. They they give her a card and say, call us. You don't want any passport problems. Mm-hmm. And then she comes out of the newspaper and the cops scramble back inside. I think essentially so they can follow her or one yeah. of them can follow her. Yeah. And Michelle is right there. He's, like, across the street behind his own newspaper watching them. Yeah. And she starts walking, and one of the cops follows her, and Michelle follows the cop. And we start to hear applause, and we're near a big crowd, and we see glimpses of a car with, like, an American flag and a French flag, a big Hmm. limousine with an open top. And this is really Eisenhower and De Gaulle in the car. They this is filmed right when Eisenhower was visiting France in nineteen
1: fifty-nine. I was gonna say if they can't afford a dolly, there's no way they can afford all those extras. Nope. <laughs> and that's it why just hap- it's why they yeah. cut Steve right before you see the picture, because they would have had to probably pay or whatever for the likeness. So yeah. they cut right before you see. Uh, de gaulle or you see
0: eisenhower the other thought that i have which is totally unrelated to the film but this is 1959 it's just three and a half years or or four years i guess before kennedy was shot in an open limousine oh good just point. like this you yeah. know yeah And she is rushing away from the cop, runs to a movie theater. He follows her inside. She she sits down in the movie theater. He follows her, sits down behind her. She gets up, goes to the bathroom. She is not acting cool. This is not unsuspicious. Right, right. And then she escapes, basically crawls out a window. Yeah. And she runs away from the cops, which just seems really, really stupid. (laughs) And then we have this immediate jump cut to them together, his hands on her face. And they go to they go back into the movies and watch a western. And all the dialogue in the film that we're hearing relates perfectly to what they're going through.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: They come out of the theater, and now playing on the sides of buildings are those you know light. I don't forget what they're called. Scrolling lights. Yeah, the headlines that give the headlines, and it's that about Michelle and Mm -hmm. that he's wanted. And I don't know if she sees them. Yeah, but like, let me ask you this. Yeah, why is she with him at this moment?
1: Because again, she doesn't know what she wants. So she's just kind of playing this particular situation out until its end.
0: I So <clears throat> mm-hmm. there's a difference between there's a guy who wants to sleep with me and I don't know how I feel about him and maybe I should sleep with him and maybe I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And there's this guy that's wanted by the police for murder. The mm-hmm. police know that I know him. The police are actively searching for him. It's the biggest story in the city and I'm hanging out with him.
1: Well, Okay. The difference <laughs> Those is are different. Sure. But it's different. The kind of person you are. So, well, that's why
0: I'm asking the yeah. question. Yeah.
1: I think she's, that's what I'm saying. I think she's the kind Oh, I see what you're saying. You're saying a little bit further. Yeah. She's the kind of person who doesn't know what she wants, but she's also the kind of person who has no problem flirting with the dangerous side of things, right? He's a bad boy. So she's playing this thing out. She likes the excitement of it. Cause she's not sure where she stands on it. And so she's going to see this thing uh, to its logical conclusion. And she's on an adventure. So her life's probably boring doing what she's doing. And this is a way to kind of escape, you know, like you said, if this film influenced Bonnie and Clyde, as you said, Bonnie essentially went with Clyde because she was kind of like bored with her life and wanted some yep. adventure. The other thing that comes
0: out is she's looking now, she's looking at the newspaper mm-hmm. and sees that he's married. It says she's married. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? And he, and she says that was ages ago. She was a
1: whack. She dumped me or I dumped her. I don't remember. But of course, of course she's the problem not you michelle of course
0: well and is he still married or is he not still married i think he's still married because doesn't say he got divorced i he's definitely still married and then we get into this thing like how do they find out and he said well someone must have seen and she says that's
1: horrible informing on people <laughs> so yeah but he responds going, she- no no no. it's the same thing informers inform burglars burgle." um and all of that she's he's to him it's the murderers natural, murder, murderers murder love. and lovers love lovers love it's all the natural order of things in his mind
0: so <laughs> and my question is when she says that's horrible informing on people hmm. is she
1: already thinking of informing on him that's a good point yeah maybe because she's gonna obviously do it later maybe she's considering it and the fact that he said no informers inform burglars burgle, blah 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 so in a way, he's kind of giving her license to do so without judgment. And there's difference between thinking about
0: it and thinking about it, if yeah. you know what I mean. Yes. Like, the, you know, the what am I going to do has got to be going through her head. Mm-hmm. And then they got to get rid of the car they have and steal another car. And they steal a Cadillac Eldorado. And I think this is, you're right, this is totally Bonnie and Clyde <laughs> at this moment. Yeah. And we go to a restaurant, and I think we're finally going to meet Antonio. Because the whole time I was thinking, is Antonio dodging him? Yeah, right But I kind of think based on meeting Antonio that that doesn't seem like what it is Mm -hmm. It seems like these people actually are going to look out for Michelle on some level, Mm -hmm. you know The other thing that's weird in the scene, we're at a restaurant and this girl that's like kissing guys to be photographed so that they can blackmail the guys which is interesting. (laughs) And then also the dude that she had, that she works with is at the same place. Yeah. It's very, very strange. And basically we hear from Antonio that there's a place that they can stay and they go to this house where there's a photo shoot going on. And it is, it's funny. There's a moment in the hotel, in the hotel room where Michelle was looking through a book of sort of erotic pictures and now we're seeing kind of erotic pictures being taken again, something mm-hmm. that wasn't shown on film. Right. And he asks her, why did you talk to that guy in the cafe? And she says, to make sure I didn't love him anymore. Yeah. That's an interesting line because first of all, that means that she's saying she did love him at mm. a certain point. Right. Otherwise she wouldn't have said it that way. But that's also what she's doing with Michelle. Right. The photographer, the model, they leave. We play some music. He had said he wasn't into music, but he's into this Mozart because it's clarinet. And now he says, my dad was a great clarinetist. Mm. This is the one thing where I go, I think this maybe is the truth. Mm. I don't know that anything else Michelle has said about his past is true. It might be. But this one I think is. Yeah. It seems like they've been together for a while. Maybe they've slept together again. He is in this chair in his underwear again, mm-hmm. calling on the phone, and he sends her out to buy like a newspaper and some milk. There's this high angle. She starts to go. She comes back, and she looks at him. Michel. And he kind of goes, what? Quoi? And she says nothing.
1: Mia? Yeah. Francois.
0: I'm just looking at you.
1: <laughs> what does that mean? I think she's sort of taking one last look. Because she's decided. Yeah, she has decided, yeah. She goes to like a cafe and
0: first orders a scotch, which they don't have. (laughs) Switches to coffee, and then she calls the cops Mm -hmm. and turns them in. Apparently, Gene Seberg and Goddard had a huge fight on the set this day. Wow. Because she wanted it to be bigger. She wanted to play it with much more emotion. Mm. And he wanted it small. And later on, she realized he was absolutely right. Yeah. And I think her performance in this moment is really great Mm -hmm. and partially because it's still ambiguous i don't know what she's feeling exactly except
1: she's feeling a lot you know this as a director actors sometimes want to play that scene and they don't understand how the camera does the work for you if you've got the right director behind the camera so that you can play the scene on a very smaller scale but it'll feel bigger when people are watching it in the theater yeah
0: well, th- there's also like an iceberg principle at mm. work, I think, which is that if you play all the emotions, you don't leave a lot for the audience to feel. Right. Whereas if you're playing them smaller, then I'm imagining more what you're feeling. Right, right. And then right. I'm more connected. I mean, it's it's so funny. There are certainly scenes in films where people play huge, huge emotions, yeah. mm-hmm. and it's amazing. Yes, but I it, I tend to be, you know, I think about like when we did Remains of the Day recently. Mm. It's all so small. The smallness is what tends to get me. Yeah. Um. She goes back in. She gives him the paper. She has the milk. He drinks out of the bottle. We're in this high angle. He says, Antonio's coming. We're going to Italy. She says, I can't go. And she says, Michelle, I called the police. <laughs> Michelle, she the police. I think the way this scene plays out is shocking because mm. I expect him to hit her. Do you know really? what I mean? Wow. Okay. I mean, like, or something dramatic. Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't respond at all. He doesn't even respond with fear exactly. No. Right. Like, it's just he accepts it, and he says, "What are you crazy?" But it, he reacts in a very odd way, and mm-hmm. it's weird to me that she comes back to tell him, which seems to me to be a really dangerous thing to do.
1: Hmm. But uh, she she's never seen him as dangerous though, and I think her telling him is her way of kind of being honest with him, giving him a chance to run and he doesn't run. Yeah. So if he had ran, that would have reaffirmed her decision. Like this isn't the guy for me. I'm glad I called the police. He's a scamper and a cat and he's running off, but he stays. And I think him staying is what messes her up even more because she thought she had made the right decision and then realized he actually does love her, which is why he sticks around. He doesn't get mad at her. It's so odd
0: because the whole movie I'm going, well, d- does he love her? Right. But in this moment, I think you're right. I think like he does in his way yeah, does love her. And it's this line where he has this epiphany and he says, I just talked about myself and you talked about yourself. I think that's the line of the whole movie mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. They spent this whole movie talking to each other. And they neither of them heard each other or right. learned. They felt like they were connecting, maybe, but they weren't. Right. Right, 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 right. And I love the next thing he says. He says, You should have talked about me and me about you. <laughs> I think that is such a good piece of advice. Yeah. Stop talking about yourself
1: a little bit. Start listening. Well, she says to him when they're in that ho- in the apartment together, she says, Say something nice about me. Say something nice. And he can't really come up with anything nice to say. And and she says this too. She says, I don't want to be in love with you. Right. Which
0: isn't the same as saying I'm not in love with you. Exactly, yes. In fact, if I'm not in love with you, I don't really need to say I don't want to be in love with you because it's immaterial. Mm -hmm. And she says, that's why I called the police. I stayed with you to make sure I was in love with you or that I wasn't. And since I'm being mean to you, it proves I'm not in love with
1: you. (laughs) Do you think that's true? No, not in any way, shape, or form. Nope, not true at all. Most people can be mean to the people they love the most. Yep. It's such a
0: complicated layer of delusions. You know, <laughs> it's like the baklava of delusions, yeah. if you will. If you will. If you will. <laughs> yeah. And no one else has ever said that. <laughs> Anything like that remotely. <laughs> yeah. you, ever, you ever start saying like a, a, a simile and just realize it is completely ridiculous? All the time. This the the Cinephiles book of ridiculous similes. (laughs) And she says, I want people to let me be. I'm independent. Hmm. She wants to be independent. Right. There's a line earlier that I don't think we brought up that was something like, I think it's I don't know if I'm afraid because I'm not free, or if I'm not free because I'm afraid. Yeah,
1: yeah. She talks to when she's talking to um the The journalist guy guy, before. Yeah. And he's still not
0: leaving. He says, you're like the girl who sleeps with everyone except the man who loves
1: her, mm. saying it's because she sleeps with everyone. This is the first time in their back and forth, Steve, where he achie- where he achieves the upper hand. Him calling her out like that is the first time he gets the, not moral high ground, but maybe the intellectual high ground or the emotionally intellectual high ground. Because he's right. He's right. Well, and in particular... He says, "Except the man who loves her." Right. I think this is the
0: only time that he expresses love for her in a way that she could hear. Right. Like most of the time, he's not. Exp- he's not really expressing love with her. He might love her, but right. he's saying all these other things. He says that she makes him want to puke. He calls her ugly. He call- <laughs> he does all these weird things rather than just be honest. Yeah. Then the weirdest thing—he's not leaving, and he says, "I'm staying. I'm in bad shape. I prefer prison. I can just look at the walls." Yeah, and not talk to anybody. And this goes, to me, to grief or nothing and right. him choosing nothing. And then right at this moment, he realizes that Beirut, his buddy, is coming to see him and this other guy. So that's what actually makes him move. Yeah. And he runs outside. And like I said, this was mostly shot in order. And so this is the final scene shot in the film. And he sees Beirut in his car, in his convertible, who's, go- who's very calm, like, I'll just park. And he's running up to him, says the cops are coming. That the American girl turned him in, and Beirut goes, well, get in the car with me. And this is where, for the first time, I think we're seeing him being honorable. Yeah. Is that he actually won't screw his friend Beirut. Right. So he won't get in the car. He says, I shouldn't be thinking of her, but I can't help it. Right. Like, suddenly, he is exp- in love with her at this moment, I yeah. think. And Beirut tries to give him the pistol, his pistol. He says, no. No. And the cops arrive, they get out of their car One of them's got like a Tommy gun Yeah. And Beirut throws the gun On the street Right in front of Michelle Right. Who runs over, bends to pick it up Turns to look at Beirut Turns back towards the cop And then we hear a gunshot And then we cut to A remarkable They're just shots that are just what they They're just, Mm -hmm. I don't know why they're amazing But him running down the street mm-hmm. followed with the handheld camera his hand on his back where he's been shot staggering as he goes moving back and forth side to side is an amazing shot
1: yeah there's a um, great music video from Radiohead where the entire music video is a person running in front of a car at night with the lights on and there's mm. essentially simulating what Belmondo is doing mm. for the entire music video The entire music video is just that And keep looking back occasionally as stumbling around, he's running So it had to have been influenced by Breathless
0: And the way he runs, his physicality is just amazing Yeah It it is 100% convincing He staggers, he holds himself up by the car She's out there, she's running after him He starts to go down, keeps going He's getting closer to this intersection He's moving slower to slower and then he falls face first on the stone roadway. And that just, there is no way that that fall doesn't hurt. That's a young actor <laughs> when you're young and you'll just do it. Yeah. And don't care. And he's, As opposed to you and I. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's true. And he's a former boxer, so he's used to getting punched in the face. So maybe he thought his face could take it. Well,
0: and he hit it. You said he hit himself in the face with a rifle. Butt. With a
1: rifle, so clearly, yeah. And he goes down
0: and she runs up. And he turns over and I love that he was still smoking and smoke comes out of his mouth. <laughs> and then he does that gesture. He, he wipes his mouth. Yeah. We see more men come into frames, their legs. She enters the frame. Her hand is on her face because she knows that she caused this. Yep. And then he opens his mouth and he makes faces like they did in the mirror at mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's what he's referencing or if he's trying to do something else. Oh, I think it is.
1: I think he's trying to make one so last oh, like connection with her from that time in the in
0: the apartment. And the final line is really interesting because mm-hmm. you remember how I said that they didn't record sound on set? Yeah. And sometimes the script supervisor actually was able to write down what they said, and sometimes she didn't. There is controversy about what he actually said in yeah. this last moment. Yeah. So what is in the Criterion Collection that I watched, Mm -hmm. it says, you make me want to puke. Yeah. But there is a possibility that he said, it makes me want to puke, Mm -hmm. which is an entirely different meaning. And in various translations, they've said, because the word he says isn't actually puke. Yeah. It's more like it's disgusting. Right. One of the translations is, it's disgusting, really. And she says, what did he say? And the cop says, he said, you're a real scumbag. And she says, what's a scumbag?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And those are different, yeah. you know? Yeah. By the way, uh, Goddard wanted hit her to rifle through his pockets
1: oh of the God. dead body. Oh, my God.
0: And she refused to do it. Thank God. And in this case, I think, you know, Goddard was right about playing the, yeah. the informing smaller. She's right about this. If she had rifled his pockets, it would, have been, it would have been terrible. Yeah. And she looks down at him and she touches her lips and then she looks... Right at the camera. Yeah. And we look at her face for a really long time. And then she turns away.
1: And that is the end of Breathless. And by the way, Breathless is the American translation. Right. But the overall translation, the actual literal translation is out of breath. And I think that's a better title. Although Breathless is a great romantic title. Out of Breath is the more accurate title to the realism in this movie and what it's all about since he dies at the end, Out of Breath.
0: So the movie goes into post. Everybody thinks it's going to be terrible. Yeah. The crew thought it was terrible. The cast thought it was terrible. The buzz around town with all the New Wave people is this is a disaster. I mean, we heard how the movie was shot. It sounds, you know, kind of rough. Goddard thinks it looks good. The actors, when they went in to loop it, which means to record the dialogue, they thought this is total trash. One of the actor's agents, and I don't know who it was, told the actor, let's hope this film is never released because it's going to ruin your career. And in post is where they really found the film. The jump cuts were added in post that wasn't intentional, as I said before. And then people started to see early cuts of the film. And suddenly the buzz really changed. Mm. And the word starts to go around that something brilliant is happening here. And the thing is, even though everyone working on the movie thought it was a bomb, this was not like a sleeper hit. This yeah. wasn't like it opened in a couple of art house theaters and built up. Once they finished making it, it got put out in the biggest chains in France. Mm-hmm. It sold 260,000 tickets in four weeks. Right. It won the Silver Bear at the Berlin Festi- Film Festival. We don't even know how profitable this movie was. It might be up to 50 times its budget, and it's right. probably a lot more than that. Right, right. Roger Ebert said about the film that there is no debut film since Citizen Kane Oof. that has been so influential. Wow. I think that might be, a, you know, it's, not, it's I don't have the love for this movie like I do for Citizen Kane, but in terms of influence. Yeah. I Because in a weird way, Citizen there are no movies like Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Whereas I, you can look, we already talked about Bonnie and Clyde. We talked about Goodfellas. Yeah. I mean, like, there is a direct connection between the French New Wave, and in particular Breathless, and Scorsese, Hal Ashby, Bogdanovich, Coppola, yeah. Tarantino. Like, Tarantino dedicated Reservoir Dogs to Godard. Right, yes. Belmondo, of course, became a huge star in France. I like one of, the, this is one of the things I saw that he said. He said, I try to get better with every role. I want to be a real actor, not just a myth.
1: <laughs> Isn't that a good quote? That is a great quote, yes. Yeah. Paul Newman felt uh, the same way.
0: Unfortunately, uh, Gene Seberg's story is much more complicated. It's yeah. much more sad. Yeah. There's an interview on the Criterion disc with her that is so horrible, it's so invasive. Like they ask her like about, well, how was it? Weren't you humiliated when this thing happened? Mm -hmm. Or did you go into a mental institution? Were you suicidal? Are you a drug addict? Like it's the most horrible interview. And that's what she had to deal with for years. Yeah. She did continue to act like she acted with Warren Beatty and Lilith. She did a bunch of movies with Irving Kirshner who directed Empire Strikes Back. Yes. She's in Paint Your Wagon with Clint Eastwood. Mm -hmm. She might have had affairs with both Warren Beatty and Clint Eastwood. Mm Uh, she's an airport 1970 in the late 60s. She became a, a super leftist supporters. She was fundraising for the Black Panthers. Yep. She ran guns for the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. She had relationships with at least two of the Black Panthers. And then the FBI started to look at her because the FBI did not like the Black Panthers. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover definitely didn't like the Black Panthers. And the FBI did what they did at that time, which was basically to destroy her and her career. Yeah. So one of the things is she got pregnant. She was married multiple times. And the FBI planted the story that the baby was not her husband's, but was the child of one of the Black Panthers. She basically got blacklisted out of the film industry. Yeah. That baby died in infancy. My understanding is every year, she tried to commit suicide on the anniversary of that
1: child's death. That was the um, claim of her last husband. Yes. That she tried to do that multiple times. And then eventually at least they claim that she succeeded finally um, at 40 years old doing that. There was a film that came out last year or earlier this year with Kristen Stewart. It doesn't capture what this story, how horrific this story really is. It shows it, but it doesn't have the power that it should have because this is a very unusual story yeah showing you the horrible power of the FBI to destroy someone when they especially under Hoover's direction you know and, and the s- idea of interracial relationships and how yeah how that was viewed back in the late 60s
0: mm-hmm. well and you just think about this person who's 17 yeah very fragile yeah. and over and over again these people mess with their lives yeah. in horrible, horrible ways. Mm-hmm. Godard, of course, became a huge director. He's not a big fan of Breathless. Mm-hmm. He felt he made a lot of mistakes in Breathless. He said he never wants to make a movie like that again. And then here's, I have, I have multiple quotes from him that I find really interesting. One is, he said, I love cinema less than I did simply because I made a popular film. I hope people really hate my second film so I can go back to loving cinema. I hope I disappoint them so they don't trust me anymore. That's great. He says, success leads to big budgets and big budgets make mistakes too costly to risk. Here's another one. He said, as a critic, I already thought of myself as a filmmaker today. I still consider myself a critic. And in a sense, I'm even more of one than before. Instead of writing criticism, I make a film, but that includes a critical dimension. I consider myself an essayist producing essays in the form of novels or novels in the form of essays. Only instead of writing, I film them. That is as different a way of looking at film (laughs) from anybody we've ever talked about on The Cinephiles. I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. And Godard is different, as different as a filmmaker as anyone we talked about on The Cinephiles. Yep. Um, I will give my final thoughts first. I really fell into Breathless this time in a way that I didn't expect. It's not my style of filmmaking. It's not my style of story. But it's so real, even though it's so contrived. And it really feels like you're watching a real relationship and the level of ambiguity keeps you wanting more and the charisma of these two main characters, they're just people you could watch on screen forever. It's, it's a really fascinating film and obviously so important to world cinema. Mm -hmm. What do you think, John?
1: It was great to watch it after he passed and I'm very glad we did it for the show. When he died all the French channels preempted all their programming in France to replay his movies. This is the kind of power Jean-Paul Belmondo had, the kind of respect and love people had for him in that country. And when you go all the way back, this is his first feature film. He's a lead in this first feature film. Sometimes this can destroy actors or directors. They're trying to live up to this, but there is a joy. There is an innocence. There is a fun. There's a playfulness. There's a, as you said, a realness, an authenticity throughout this movie that you rarely get in debut films from film directors or debut films from lead actors, both him and Gene Seberg. And remember, this is Seberg at a time when the critics had pilloried her from a number of films. So this is, in essence, a film that establishes Gene Seberg, introduces Jean-Paul Balmondo and Jean-Luc Godard, and also... Blows open the doors to the French New Wave. So what? And what you can do in ninety minutes is incredible. And the effect and its legacy will go on. This is a film. When a film is over, it dies, and it is immortal now forever. When it is great, and it accomplishes what he says, what that hmm. writer says. I wanna, I wanna become immortal and then die. This film became immortal. And everybody connected to it has died and still it is immortal. And so it has accomplished that goal. And it's a film that you can enjoy over and over again. And it was great to come back and enjoy it at my advanced age to go back and remember those 20s. I mean, you can, you have to remember the right. purity of film, the joy of youthfulness in the great films. And I think this is one that will help you to recapture that once more when you watch it. So that
0: is what we think of Breathless. This has been an incredible conversation, and we'd like you to join that conversation by visiting us on our Facebook page. Do a search for the Cinephiles. You can follow the show at Cine underscore files on Twitter, Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher. Leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts. We're over a thousand, but I think we need to get to 2,000 reviews. I think that's where we got to aim for. If you want to support the show like Jono Schofferberger did, you could do so at patreon.com slash the cinephiles you can buy or stream breathless along with every other film we've ever done on cinephiles.net you can follow me at sr morris on twitter morris one on instagram and if you like star trek you can check out enterprise incidents we are just finishing up season one uh hopefully john will come back for one of his favorite episodes in season two john where people find you
1: uh you can always find me uh at the roca says on twitter and on instagram and over on my youtube channel youtube.com slash john Roka says just crossed 18,000 subscribers. So come on over and hang out with us for all the reviews, trailer reactions, and live shows we do there. And on Twitch, The Outlaw Nation, all one word there for watch alongs and play alongs. And I think that is it for
0: this week. We will see you next time for another great film on The Cinephiles.